Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing what is enlightenment or Nibbana. This is chapter three in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And here we are Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time, and it's time for us to dive into one of our chapters in this book where I'm leading students through the group learning program in order to learn the teachings of Gautama Buddha and practice those teachings so that you can progress further and further along this path closer and closer to enlightenment. Well, this path that Gautama Buddha lays out for us that we're going to really, really start into next week on Sunday that we've been kind of building a little bit of buildup to get to that point, this path that he shares with us it leads to enlightenment. It leads to Nibbana. This is the Pali word that we use to refer to this. Well, if we're going to embark on this journey and progress on this path to this enlightenment or Nibbana, then it's important that we understand what that is. Because the more that we understand what it is, then you're more likely to progress towards that goal. For example, if you were going from your hometown to somewhere else a few thousand kilometers away or even a few hundred kilometers away, you would want to know what is the name of this city, what does it look like, what are some of the landmarks that are there, and what can I expect when I kind of get there. And having that basic information about this new town that you're planning to go to and some kind of map to get there whether it's a printed map or a GPS or what have you, you will then be more likely to actually arrive to that city because you know what it's like. You have some landmarks. You have a description of what that city is like. So even if maybe you don't quite understand the map along the way, you can stop and you can ask people. You can get guidance and explain the city that you're going to and people can kind of guide you and help you along the way. Well, this path that Gautama Buddha lays out for us is a path that for sure, the more you understand it and the more clear that you learn and practice this path, the more clear this map to this mental state of enlightenment is. But if you've never attained enlightenment, which if you're learning here, you haven't, then how would you know what the destination is or what it is to get there? It's great if I give you the map and I tell you all about how to get there, but how are you going to know once you arrive and how do you even know you want to go to this city? 
right? How do you even know you want to go to enlightenment if you don't know what it actually is? So in today's talk, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss what enlightenment is and the advantages of this, the various stages of enlightenment, and how to actually progress to attain enlightenment. So this is an important topic for you as you set out on this journey so that you understand this destination and you'll be more likely to actually attain it the more you understand what this destination is. So as we progress in this talk, feel free to ask questions because until you understand these teachings very, very deeply, it would be hard for you to really progress and make any progress on this path. So that's what I'm here for is to share information with you. But more importantly, as you have unique and specific personalized questions that you would like more insight on, we can dive down into those questions and I can help you as we go throughout our talk today. So let's start with what is enlightenment? Let's talk about what this is, okay? What enlightenment is, is it's a mental state that the mind is gradually evolving to attain. And the way that the mind attains this mental state is it eliminates what's called the three poisons. The three poisons are greed, hatred, and delusion, or we also call them craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality, realization of non-self, and dissolving of the ego, okay? These are kind of high-level ways of referring to the problems that Gautama Buddha discovered about the human mind, and we go into this topic in chapter 8, so in another five weeks, we'll actually go much deeper into these three poisons, discuss what they are, these problems of the mind, and how to actually remedy them. Today, we're going to go into a topic called the 10 fetters, which is actually a much more deep teaching, deeper than the three poisons. But the three poisons actually map into the 10 fetters. So we're going to actually go several layers deeper than the three poisons today. But later, we're going to talk about these three poisons, where the mind, through training, whether it's meditation or generosity or practicing in daily life, you need to eradicate from the mind this greed, hatred, and delusion or craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And there needs to be the realization of non-self, which we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about non-self. We'll talk about it a little bit today, but much more next week. And dissolving of the ego, which we'll also talk about a little bit today and definitely more when we get to chapter 17. We have a whole chapter devoted to dissolving the ego. Once somebody trains the mind to eliminate these three poisons, it's a permanent mental state. And the reason why is because in order to eliminate these three poisons, there's various teachings that you need to learn and practice in daily life. And by practicing the teachings, you independently observe that the teachings are in fact truth and therefore you acquire wisdom. Remember, I always talk about don't believe anything I say because if you just believe what I say, this isn't going to lead to wisdom. It's only through wisdom that the mind awakens to this mental state of enlightenment because the more you understand the natural laws of existence, these natural 
teachings that the Buddha is slowly, gradually awakening your mind to, the mind gains this wisdom and now it operates in the world much differently than it did previously. And once you acquire this wisdom and the mind gradually starts operating in the world differently, you will never go back to the way things used to be. So for example, if you've in the past been really angry and hostile and you learned certain things that you discovered about the mind that you've decided, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not good for me. You will never start doing that again because you've learned the wisdom that that isn't helpful for you. So you'll no longer regress back to doing things the way you used to. So once somebody eliminates greed, hatred, and delusion, or craving, anger, ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, once somebody realizes non-self and dissolves the ego, the mind's never going to say, you know, I kind of liked it when I was arrogant and I was hostile and I had a lot of trouble in my personal professional relationships that when I talked to people, it never really seemed to go well and things kind of ended on a bad note. I kind of enjoyed that. Let me go back to doing that way. The mind will never be able to do that because it will have evolved. It will have awakened to these teachings through this wisdom of independently verifying the teachings with guidance that it's a permanent mental state where the mind resides permanently in enlightenment. Okay? More directly, what enlightenment is, is it's a purification of the mind. Through training the mind, you're purifying the mind to eradicate certain unwholesome qualities about the mind, which we're going to get into today. That's the 10 fetters. This purification of the mind happens through you learning the teachings and you understanding what it takes to train the mind to purify it and rid it of this kind of pollution that the mind has. So this process or this path to enlightenment is a purification of the mind. Ultimately, once the mind becomes enlightened, it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And that's permanently. It never goes back to ever feeling sad or angry or frustrated or irritated, annoyed or guilt or shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. Once you learn these teachings very, very deeply and you purify the mind, training it to eradicate these three poisons, this pollution of the mind, then the mind is permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And it has eliminated all discontentedness of the mind. All these discontent feelings that I mentioned, sadness, anger, frustration, boredom, loneliness, shyness, guilt, shame, fears, you know, even things like anxiety and stress. An enlightened mind never feels stress, never feels anxiety, never feels depression. None of these feelings arise in the mind for someone who has attained enlightenment. The mind is essentially unshakable. There's nothing that can happen in life for an enlightened being that would shake up their mind. So no matter what they see, no matter what they experience, no matter what happens to them or the people around them, their mind is never going to be discontent. This is even if somebody close to you dies, 
oftentimes we feel that if someone dies and we break down and become very sad and very sorrowful and we cry and cry and cry, this shows how much we love the person. But in fact, what it shows is how much the mind is holding on to this person. And because it's holding on to this person so tightly, the mind has now become discontent. It's become sad. It's become sorrowful. It's become shaken up. So once a mind has attained enlightenment, it doesn't matter what happens around them. They're never going to experience this sadness this anger, this frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, loneliness, boredom, shyness, jealousy, resentment, all of these discontent feelings will have been completely eliminated from the mind. But that's a gradual progression of learning the teachings and applying them in your life. And this is one of the reasons why you can observe these teachings that they are the truth and that they're leading you to this enlightened mental state because as the mind goes from being angered or hostile down to frustrated to over time you have irritations over time you have these little annoyances over time the mind just becomes completely peaceful and things that once shook up the mind and caused this extreme anger you're going to realize huh that didn't even affect me anymore. Wow. Like six months ago or six weeks ago or six days ago, that would have really bothered the mind. But after learning and practicing these teachings, it didn't affect me at all. My mind's still calm. So this is how you can see the truth that your mind is moving closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. And that's why it's important that you don't believe anything but as we get into these teachings more and more, that you understand them, learn them very deeply, apply them in practice, and the more that you do that, you will see the truth for yourself, not only that the teachings are true, but through learning the teachings, seeing they're true, gaining wisdom, that wisdom will improve the condition of the mind to the point where these emotions, these feelings will become peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy all the time, and the mind can't be shaken up. And one of the analogies that we use to talk about this is, you know, if you have belief, your mind can believe anything, and it can be shaken up very easily. So, for example, if you at one time believed in Santa Claus, and you believed that Santa Claus was true, eventually something happened where you got the truth and you realized that Santa Claus doesn't exist and you got this wisdom. And now, no matter how many Santa Clauses you see, no matter how many Christmas songs you hear, no matter how many footprints you see in the snow, you know that Santa Claus doesn't exist and nobody could ever convince you otherwise because you have the wisdom. Your mind is unshakable on the topic of Santa Claus, you know that he doesn't exist. Well, there's all these teachings in Gautama Buddha's teachings that your mind is currently unawakened to. You're unaware of them. And the more that you learn them, and then you apply them in practice, independently observing the truth for yourself, and you see the wisdom that these teachings are in fact the truth, now your mind becomes unshakable that nobody could ever convince you again of the things that your mind was awakened to as part of this path, 
right? So the mind becomes unshakable where it's steady, it's calm, it's very stable. This is what I talked about a few talks ago. A pot without a stand is easy to tip over, but your stand is this meditation practice and all of these teachings that you learn, the wider and wider this stand becomes, the mind just becomes so stable that it's unshakable. And that's once you get closer and closer to enlightenment. Oftentimes when you read books or you talk with people about enlightenment, if you've done that, or if you choose to do that in the future, people will share that enlightenment is ultimate happiness or ultimate bliss, or they say, you know, permanent happiness. Well, I don't describe enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss. If someone is experiencing lots of bliss, this is like really excited, you know, elated feelings. This is oftentimes associated with reaching the first jhana, which you're going to learn about in about two weeks. And people oftentimes think they're enlightened when they reach that first jhana because there's so much bliss associated with that first jhana that people can misunderstand and actually think they're enlightened when they're really not. And they may think they're enlightened, so they might tell people that enlightenment is ultimate bliss. But in reality, they haven't fully evolved to being fully awake to the enlightened mental state. And that's why they're falsely attributing enlightenment as this ultimate bliss, because they're not actually enlightened yet. That ultimate bliss will actually subside the more enlightened someone becomes and the mind becomes very steady, very focused and unshakable. It has this peaceful, calm, serene, and contentness with joy. But the bliss is kind of early on when you kind of first start breaking through into the jhanas. I also don't describe enlightenment as happiness because happiness is impermanent. You're going to hear about this next week when we talk about the Four Noble Truths, about the impermanent nature of happiness, about how it's temporary, right? A lot of people are craving and pursuing this happiness. And because people want happiness so badly, the mind can't attain it permanently. And therefore, people oftentimes become very sad or very depressed because they're led to believe, believe that their mind should be happy all the time. And because that is a false reality, it's not possible. People are craving this happiness wanting this happiness, desiring this happiness. And when the mind can't hold on to it permanently and it drops out of that happiness, then the mind just keeps craving it and craving it and craving it. And this is where some people end up turning to drugs or substances to kind of falsely create that. Or some people even get so bad that they end up turning to suicide because they, they feel so sorryful that the mind isn't in this happiness that it needs to be. Happiness is based on a condition. The mind is happy because they got a new car or the mind is happy because they got a new job or a new boyfriend or girlfriend or a new pair of shoes or some condition. There's some condition that's causing the happiness. And once that condition wanes, then the happiness subsides. And that's when the mind moves to some other feeling. And that's why enlightenment is not happiness, because happiness is impermanent. It's based on some condition. 
where an enlightened mind is permanent. The peacefulness, calmness, serenity, connectedness with joy is a permanent mental state that is not based on any conditions. So when the person wakes up that's enlightened, they're peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The middle of the day, all throughout their day, when they go to sleep, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not based on any particular conditions of things that might happen around them, any particular circumstance or situation or experience. Nothing causes the mind to move to sadness. Nothing causes the mind to go to this happiness or excitement or elation. The mind is just permanently in the middle where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where happiness has this impermanent nature where it's always fluctuating and going up and down, where an enlightened mind isn't going to have that fluctuation. And the reason why an unenlightened mind has that fluctuation is because it's dependent on these conditions and it's looking for these conditions to create these different impermanent mental states rather than training the mind to reside in the middle where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So an enlightened mind is going to have eliminated this pollution that we're going to get into today through this process of purification of the mind. It will have evolved to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that has eliminated 100% of the discontent feelings, completely unshakable. It will be permanently in the middle, experiencing nothing but peace, calm, serenity, and contentness with joy, not based on any conditions whatsoever. An unenlightened mind is going to experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, jealousy, resentment. All of these discontent feelings are all going to be experienced in an unenlightened mind. But as the mind becomes more and more awake, more and more enlightened, those things will subside and the mind will move into this mental state that's permanently peaceful, permanently calm, permanently serene, permanently content, and permanently joyful, being unaffected by anything that happens around the person or being unaffected by anything that happens in the world. It has this unshakable calmness to it. So let me stop here and see what questions we have on what is enlightenment. I have a question, David. You mentioned in the book, Developing a Life Practice, that we should be able to talk about this state of enlightenment and we should be able to talk about it openly, and we should. And yet, it's not something you would necessarily discuss with a group of friends, unless unless you're interested in that. And there seems to be a kind of stigma about talking about it. So why is it you think that there is a stigma talking about enlightenment? And why do some people doubt that it even exists? There isn't very wide teachings in the world about this higher consciousness of enlightenment or nibbana. People are born, they kind of grow up, and they just think that this is life. I'm sad, I'm depressed, I have anxiety, I have stress, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm elated, I'm bored, I'm lonely, and that's all they've ever kind of known before. And they lack the understanding that there is something beyond that in the human consciousness and they haven't been exposed to it. 
And oftentimes, because these traditions are taught based on belief, they may think that they're being asked to believe that this mental state of enlightenment exists. And if you just believe, 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 you'll eventually attain it. And oftentimes in the world, there's rites, rituals, ceremonies, worship, and people just say, if you do these things, you will get to enlightenment. So there's a lot of misinformation in the world about what enlightenment is, or even if it exists, or how to attain it, and all of these different things. And because a lot of us are brought up to believe certain traditions, people might think that that's what is being asked of them here with this mental state of enlightenment. And that's why I make it very clear that that's not what enlightenment and these teachings are all about. So I think people have a hard time wrapping their mind around this mental state that you can actually attain where you've completely eliminated all discontentedness. They're like, no way that that's possible. It's just, it's just utterly impossible because they've grown up with all of these discontent feelings their whole life and they just can't imagine eliminating those from the mind. And they most likely have never met anybody that has eliminated that from the mind. And if they have met somebody that has eliminated that from the mind, that person hasn't told them that they've done so. Because an enlightened person doesn't go around telling everyone that they're enlightened. That's not how this works. If somebody is going around telling everyone that they're enlightened, you can be sure that they're not. Because an enlightened person isn't going to have ego and isn't going to have pride, isn't going to have arrogance, isn't going to be looking for notoriety to put themselves above others, right? So if somebody comes out and tells you like, yeah, I'm enlightened, come on, let me teach you, let me show you how to get enlightened, well, right away, people are kind of suspicious. But if you hear somebody saying that, then you can be sure that they're not enlightened because an enlightened person isn't going to profess that they are enlightened because of a number of reasons. One is because an enlightened person doesn't have ego, doesn't have pride, isn't kind of looking to put themselves above others. They don't have arrogance. But also, person is not really well equipped 100% to say that they are enlightened or not. Even though they may know that they're enlightened, there can be something kind of hidden there that that person doesn't see. So if someone goes around saying they're enlightened, you know that they aren't enlightened, one of the worst things you can do as a practitioner is really consider yourself as enlightened because as soon as you consider yourself as enlightened, the mind usually becomes sluggish and feels like, all right, I'm done. You know, I don't have to pursue any more wisdom. I'm kind of done with this. And once the mind becomes sluggish, as you saw, if you've read this chapter, the seven factors of enlightenment, one of the factors is you need to have mental vigor and mental alertness. So if the mind becomes sluggish and you're just like, oh, I'm so enlightened. Oh, this is so wonderful. Oh, wow, my mind feels so great. And you do nothing in the world, then you're not actually enlightened because there's no mental vigor or alertness. So someone who thinks they're enlightened can become sluggish. They can wrap ego around it and they can walk around somewhat arrogant. So even if someone's kind of had a glimpse of what enlightenment looks like and then they become arrogant about that and kind of go around professing that they're enlightened or even thinking they are enlightened, the mind can kind of drop back down to this unenlightened state, but the person still truly believes that they're actually enlightened. 
So a truly enlightened person isn't going to tell other people that they're enlightened and they won't even really truly try to grasp onto that for themselves and really convince themselves they're enlightened because an enlightened person has been through many years of learning and progress along this path of training their mind. And even though they're not experiencing discontentedness anymore and their life is very, very peaceful, there's really no end to this path. It's not like a marathon that you cross the finish line and now like, oh, I'm done. I, you know, everything's finished. Once you actually move the mind into enlightenment, you can actually continue to gain more and more and more and more wisdom along this path. This is why the Buddha only taught a very handful of teachings that are needed to actually attain enlightenment. He didn't teach everything that he knew. He was walking through the forest one time and he had a bunch of monks with him and he reached down and he picked up some leaves in his hand and he said, monks, what is more, all the leaves overhead and all of the trees or the leaves that are in my hand? And the monks were like, of course, all the leaves of all of the trees overhead are much more than those few leaves in your hand. And he said, so too is the wisdom that I gained in this self-awakening as a Buddha. That is represented by all the leaves and all of the trees overhead, where the wisdom and knowledge that I'm going to share with you in order to awaken your mind is only represented by the few leaves that are in my hand. So it's only those few leaves that are in your hand, which is enough to learn and practice to get to enlightenment. But once you learn those and you practice those and the mind is so-called enlightened, there's so much more wisdom that you can acquire by continuing to practice the teachings and realize more and more degrees of an enlightened mind. So, you know, back to your original question, Max, I think that people have just been so indoctrinated with belief and they associate religion with belief and they associate Gautama Buddha's teachings with religion, which it's not. It's a life practice. It's a better way to live life. So once you start coming into these teachings in the proper way, realizing that there is no belief and realizing that it's not a religion, there is no centralized organization that's putting requirements or obligations or rights, rituals, worship or ceremonies onto you, that this is an independent journey where you can independently observe the condition of the mind improving, then once you get on that track, it becomes self-evident, it becomes self-aware and the mind moves towards enlightenment. But if your entryway into these teachings is still being conditioned from these other situations and experiences you've had in your past life, then people just might kind of reject it altogether and just be like, no way, it's not possible. And it's hard for an unenlightened mind to even fathom what enlightenment truly is until they've experienced it or until you've gotten glimpses of it. Once you get some glimpses of it, you're like, whoa, this thing is actually possible. And that's where sometimes in meditation, even when you first get started on this path, you might have like one second or five seconds of complete and utter peace of mind. Even if it's just five seconds, that's almost like temporary enlightenment, right? Enlightenment itself is permanent, but you're gonna get these glimpses. We call it enlightenment, but it's not like flipping on a light switch where it's either on or off. 
it's kind of like it flickers for a long time before the light comes on and just stays on permanently. So even if you get that three seconds or five seconds in meditation where the mind is just utterly and completely peaceful, let that be truth for you that the mind can get to that mental state of enlightenment. And you saw it there for two seconds or three seconds or five seconds. And now it's just a matter of learning and practicing more so that you can expand that time where the mind is enlightened, not just in meditation, but outside of meditation as well in daily life. So there's a lot of different reasons, Max, but the more people learn about it, the more it becomes just like any other conversation. And, you know, Gautama Buddha, that's all he really talked about was enlightenment. And he was very comfortable talking about it. But there are plenty of people in the world that just reject it and don't want to hear anything about it or just think it's all hogwash or fake news or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, thank you, David. We have a number of questions. Okay. I suggest we go to Uma first. So she asks, hi, David, sir. Do enlightened people not require any motivation in daily life since they know they're not going to have rebirth? Also, will they be curious to know what will happen to them after their death? By the time someone has reached enlightenment, they already understand that there is no declaration of teachings of what happens after death. Gautama Buddha left the teachings of what happens after death as undeclared. He never taught, once you attain enlightenment and you die, what happens next, right? And you can attain enlightenment during your life and enjoy it for the rest of your life, or you can attain it at death right? Jesus would have said, die and go to heaven, right? So Gautama Buddha never taught what's going to come next once you attain enlightenment and you die. So a person who's attained enlightenment will have no desire, no craving, no longing. The mind won't be grasping for what's going to happen to me after death. But an enlightened mind is so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy you don't really care what's going to happen after death because your mind is already experiencing so much peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy. If there is something after death, which Gautama Buddha never taught, then it's either going to be what you're experiencing now or it's going to be better than what you're experiencing right now. So by the time someone's evolved to enlightenment, they will have needed to fully extinguish any craving, desire, or longing to even know what comes next and just be content with what is in the present moment. In terms of motivation, an enlightened being doesn't need to search for motivation for why to do things. They just do things because it's the right thing to do. They're motivated largely through benefiting other people. By the time you've become enlightened, you've eliminated the self or you've realized non-self. So nothing you do is motivated by your own self-interest. Everything that you do is motivated in a way to help other people. And not everyone who becomes enlightened is going to necessarily decide to teach and help others become enlightened. 
But let's just say a politician or a community leader or a business owner or a taxi driver or a street sweeper or a waiter or waitress is enlightened. Those people in whatever roles they fulfill in life are going to do that without craving anger and ignorance, without greed, hatred and delusion, without this interest to please the self. They're going to be fulfilling their role in society in a way to help others. So whether it's a taxi driver or a food server, garbage collector, a leader, a CEO, a you know whatever the role might be, the person is going to be looking to help others. And that's what they do on a daily basis. They have a certain role in society that they fulfill any of those livelihoods to sustain their life. But in doing that role, they're going to be always looking for ways to help other people. That's a good segue into Alex's question. He asks, business gurus and books teach us that craving is important to reach success. They call it the law of attraction. By reaching enlightenment, are we going to be financially successful anyway? Depends what you consider financially successful because everybody's idea of what financial success is different. But by the time someone attains enlightenment, they will have their livelihood worked out. They will already have a certain livelihood and they will know that this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to contribute to the world and they're going to have some way to sustain their life. So it doesn't mean that every enlightened person is going to have millions and millions of dollars, but it doesn't mean every single enlightened person is going to have zero and be poor and no money whatsoever. Everybody has to find where is their place in terms of the spectrum of financial needs. Gautama Buddha gave up everything and just had robes in a bowl and got food from people along the street where other people who are enlightened might be millionaires or multimillionaires. But if somebody is pursuing money and financial gain out of craving, they're not going to reach enlightenment through that craving. However, there's a way to attain wealth while also pursuing enlightenment, doing it without this mental longing and strong eagerness. What a lot of people's mind is conditioned to believe is that the goal in this life is to be happy and that happiness is based on how much money you have or how much material wealth you have. And if you have this material wealth, then you will be happy, which hopefully you guys all know isn't true, right? It doesn't matter what your bank account has, how much wealth you have, that doesn't equate to happiness. There's plenty of rich people in the world that are utterly sad, depressed, even commit suicide. And there's rich people in the world that are peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy as well, right? So what a lot of people's mind is conditioned to believe is that if I just crave more and more material wealth and I keep pushing myself to get more and more and more material wealth, that eventually the mind will become happy permanently and then that's all I'll ever need. But that is not enlightenment. That is actually craving, desire, attachment, 
because as soon as you're making $100,000 a year, you're going to crave 150. And as soon as you got 150, you're going to crave 250. And then you get 250, you're going to want 500. As soon as your bank account has 500,000, you're going to want a million. As soon as you have a million, you're going to want 2 million. As soon as you have 2 million, you're going to want 5 million. And this craving never stops. And the mind just keeps pursuing this material wealth. So the goal is to train the mind to be satisfied with what is where you can pursue money and use that money for the benefit of your life and the life of people around you, but you don't do it with this longing and the strong eagerness. And then there's some people that might just be completely content with just making a few hundred dollars a month and they're just content with, with that. So everybody's life is different. And that's what part of this path is, is finding out what's really important for you and what is your place in this world and what type of life-sustaining livelihood are you going to have and where is your mind going to be content and peaceful with that certain amount of income to sustain your life? Thanks, David. Now, the next couple of questions I think might be more appropriate to the next couple of slides. So I suggest that we move on. Okay, let's do that. So the next thing I wanted to share is what are the advantages of attaining enlightenment? Now that you understand what enlightenment is, that it's this permanent mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where the mind is unshakable. It never experiences discontent feelings. Okay, that's in and of itself a lot of advantages. But there's also other things to really kind of highlight as part of what are the advantages of attaining enlightenment. Well, once the mind eliminates all this craving, anger, and ignorance, this self, this ego, or greed, hatred, and delusion, or unknowing of true reality, this self, this ego, once you eliminate all that, once you eliminate all the discontent feelings, the mind has this high degree of focus, concentration, memory, and clarity of thought the mind becomes singular focused on one thing at a time. This is one of the reasons why when the Buddha taught for 45 years, he taught orally, just by mouth. Nobody wrote anything down. And as people became more and more enlightened and they heard him speak over multiple years, they memorized his teachings because they had such profound ability to focus, concentrate, have memory and clarity of thought that once he died, that's when they finally decided to write things down and they were able to write things down perfectly clear because there were people who memorized his teachings word for word for word for word, right? And this is what an enlightened being is going to have is they're gonna have this high degree of focus, concentration, memory and clarity of thought. So as someone becomes more and more enlightened, going back to the previous question, if you wanted to use that in your pursuit of business in order to help people through whatever business that you set up, having a high degree of focus, concentration, memory, and clarity of thought, this person is going to be a very good leader, community leader, leader of a business, leader of anything. Even if you are just, like I mentioned, like if you're a taxi driver or a food server or a street sweeper, you're going to do this with such focus and concentration and memory and clarity of thought that the mind never drifts to the past, 
The mind never wanders into the future. The mind never experiences sadness and anger and frustration. If you remember times when you've been angry, by the time that your mind calms down from the anger, a lot of times you don't even remember why you were even angry to begin with. Or you may not even remember what started the anger because the memory is just you know, inundated with all these discontent feelings. So once the mind gradually moves to this enlightened mental state, not only do you eliminate the discontent feelings, but you gain all of this focus, concentration, memory, and clarity to benefit you in your personal and professional lives. So this will be really helpful for you. What you'll also notice is as you learn what we call the Eightfold Path, which I'm going to teach you in two weeks' time, this wisdom that you gained from the Eightfold Path, you will have this deep, deep wisdom to understand the world around you and understand why things happen the way they do. And there will be this politeness, this kindness, this care that you have for other people, this friendliness, calmness, and respectfulness for other beings. So you'll have this deep wisdom where the mind has awakened to this enlightened mental state that you will understand when things happen. So when COVID-19 happens or when you see certain things in the news or whatever, you will be able to relate those things to the teachings directly. And this is one of the reasons why the mind doesn't get shaken up is because you know why that happened. You have the wisdom to understand what going on in the world around you and how to conduct your life with this deep wisdom and your interactions with other people, whether it's a personal or professional relationship, you'll be very polite. You'll be very kind. You'll be very caring, friendly, calm, respectful. And by an enlightened being being this way, your relationships are just going to flourish both personally and professionally. If you have a life partner or you have children or neighbors or friends or family members, your colleagues, your coworkers, you're going to have this deep wisdom in which to relate to all people around you and have very healthy relationships with you never being discontent or angry or hostile by you not ever causing harm to other people around you. Other people are going to be very comfortable to be around you, right? So if you choose to be a leader, people will kind of gravitate towards you because if you're enlightened, you're never harming anyone. You're never talking in a way. You never have certain intentions. You never have certain speech or certain actions that are causing harm to others. So because other people feel so comfortable around you, it's really easy for people to come around you and spend time with you because they're kind of at ease. They feel like their stress is kind of relaxed because in all their different interactions with you, you've never done anything to harm them. So they feel more and more comfortable to be around you. And the, the numbers of people that are comfortable to be around you just grows and grows and grows and grows. And because you're not attached to these relationships, if somebody goes off and you don't see them for five years or so, the mind's not thinking, oh, they must not like me. They don't, they must hate me or they're judging me or the mind doesn't try to figure out all this stuff. It just recognizes the impermanent nature of relationships. And you might not see someone for five years or 10 years or 20 years. But then when you do see them, you have lots of love and kindness, compassion, respect for them. So you can have 
actually an enormous amount of relationships because you're not bogged down in trying to understand each individual thing that happens in each individual friend's life. That takes a lot of time and effort. So if you have five or 10 friends and you're spending all this time just trying to understand the play-by-play of every single thing that happens in their life, and you're attributing this to friendship, that by you showing this interest and understanding every little detail of their life, that shows that you're a good friend, that's a misunderstanding. In reality, what it is, is the mind has this longing and this craving for this information from this friend and this friend has this longing to share this information with you and if there's this attachment eventually there's going to be discontentedness and with so much deep level of degree of i want to know everything that's going on in their life and i want them to know everything that's going on in my life you can only have about five or ten friends on a real deep level by doing that because you're sharing everything they're sharing everything that takes a lot of time and effort Whereas if you learn how to love and show care and friendliness and politeness and respectfulness without attachment, now you can have thousands and thousands and thousands of people that you know and are friendly with. You don't necessarily talk to them every day or every week or every month or even every year. But when you're in conversations with them or when you interact with them, you're never causing any harm to them. So if you don't hear from them for three years or so, that's fine. But if something arises and you're like, hey, I should call Rebecca because this project that I'm working on would be really helpful for Rebecca's life and it would be helpful for me too. And you can call up Rebecca and because you have this great relationship with her, bada bing, bada boom, even though you guys haven't talked for three years, you guys can be right back where you started from. She can work on the project and... You guys are benefiting each other and benefiting society. So you'll actually find that you can actually have more relationships and they'll be free of sadness. They'll be free of anger. You're not causing harm, so no harm is coming to you, but you're also not getting any anger or hostility in the mind. So this relationship can be an ongoing relationship that you revisit whenever you need to as it benefits them or it benefits you or it benefits society. And you'll get along with personal and professional relationships much better this way. We have a question from Michelle. How does the person who achieved enlightenment deal with difficult or abusive relationships or situations? A person who's attained enlightenment isn't going to be in a abusive relationship because they will have already observed that there is abuse here, there's harm that this other person's causing through their speech and their actions are causing harm. An enlightened person's not going to be around somebody who's doing that. So by the time someone's attained enlightenment, they will have either worked out that relationship where that person and, and they themselves aren't causing harm to each other, or they would move past that relationship. Because an enlightened person isn't going to stay in a relationship where there's harm, either intention, speech, or actions. They're not going to stick around for that because they know that it's going to lead to nothing wholesome, that it's not beneficial. And because this enlightened being is not causing harm to others, then they're not going to be around people who are causing harm to them or to others. We have a question from Judith. I've heard that in order to heal, 
and be able to take care of oneself, one needs to be aware of their own anger and their right and even need of being angry at injustice. Would that somehow be correct? I don't agree with that. You don't actually need to be angry. Anger doesn't really help you. It doesn't help you at all. When you're on this path and you've decided you're interested in moving to this enlightened mental state where there is no anger, what anger can do for you is it can point out to you what your attachments are so you know what's causing the anger. But the whole goal of this path to reach to enlightenment is to eliminate the anger because the anger doesn't serve any purpose. Let me just give an example. Say my son lies to me about something. Say I tell him, this is actually a real story from yesterday. I tell him, you know, okay, you shouldn't be watching YouTube for today because you've been watching too much YouTube and I'd like you to stop watching YouTube. Well, if he goes behind my back and he watches YouTube and I find out about it and then I become angry because he's not followed what I said, right? He's disobeyed what I've shared with him as guidance as a parent. If I become angry at him, it's going to come across in my speech and my actions. It's just going to be hostility. It's going to be aggression and yelling and upset. That's not going to help anything in the situation. So anger doesn't serve any purpose to help. What's better is to remain calm and peaceful and have a discussion and explain and guide and help him to understand why dad has chosen for him to not watch YouTube. And then he will understand this guidance and be more likely to follow it. Where if someone is just hostile and aggressive and angry all the time, it's not going to help. And let's use it for maybe like a social situation. Let's say that there's a group of us and we disagree with racism and we think that this is wrong and we feel that this is harmful in the world that someone would judge another person based on the color of their skin or their hair or their national origin or something like this. And we agree that, okay, this group of 10, 15, 30 people, 500 people, whatever, we're now going to work to try to convince other people that this is wrong. Well, if we go out into the world with hostility and anger and tell everyone how angry we are about this racism and these social injustices in the world, and that's causing us to be angry. Well, what does that anger serve? It's just anger and hostility coming out in our intention, speech, and actions. A better approach would be to remain calm and remain peaceful and try to enter into dialogue with people that can create programs and mass information campaigns to educate and guide and influence people to learn that judging people based on their color of their skin or their national origin or whatever is wrong and this isn't helpful, that we should look at all beings and love and care for all people. So doing that without anger is going to be much more beneficial in the world than if we do it with anger and hostility. So anger doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. We can eliminate this anger and actually be much more successful in life in all the endeavors that we pursue. So we have a follow-up from Judith. She asks, would some type of anger be the quick energy to fix certain dangerous things? So I think the emphasis there on some type of anger be useful. 
as she then says, but not with aggressiveness. Yeah, see, anger doesn't improve anything. It doesn't actually fix anything. Anger is just going to rise up in the mind and it's going to cloud your judgment. It's going to cloud your decision making. And now you're going to have a lot of trouble implementing any change and creating any beneficial outcome because the anger is clouding your decision making. Whereas if you get rid of the anger and you eliminate it and you see a problem, now with your wisdom and your calm mind and your concentration and your memory, your clarity of thought, you can gain ideas and implement ideas in order to improve the situation and make it better. But having this anger is like a dark cloud that is inhibiting you from clarity of thought to be able to apply good solutions to resolve the situation and make it better so it doesn't happen in the future. Judith asks, so I understand that a single focus mind will be quicker and with more clarity. Yes, it will have more clarity. So once the anger arises, now everything that's happening in that situation is going through this filter of anger. So the intentions, the speech, and the actions are all coming through this anger, and that's going to clout the message. And the person on the other side, they're just going to hear anger and hostility, or even just even if there is no hostility, even if you're just angry about the situation and you're talking a little bit more firmly and a little bit more forceful, then that's going to clout and inhibit clarity for you to actually be able to create improvement in the situation. So getting rid of the anger is utterly important to realize this enlightened mental state. And having done so, you will find that your personal professional relationships and any activities that you're involved in are only going to improve and become better and better. We have a follow-up from Joy. Can we want to change injustice without anger? Can we still pursue that path? I believe there are things happening in my country that are dangerous and need to change. I just took a position, a very simple position, to assist with that change. Can we want things to be better in our world? Does this make sense? You can do anything that you like, but that word want is associated with craving, desire, attachment. Want expectations, obligations. If you want it badly, that's a longing with a strong eagerness. We're going to talk about this next week on Sunday. And if you have that longing with a strong eagerness, that wanting is going to cause the discontentedness because that's the craving, the desire, the attachment, the wanting, the expectations, the obligations. That's going to lead to discontentedness. If you see things in society that you would like to work on to improve, you can do that with a goal, with an objective, with an interest, and doing that with a calm, peaceful mind that is pursuing change in this area is going to be much more successful than someone who wants it so badly. So you have to change and transform that want into a goal, an interest, and an objective where you don't have such strong desire and eagerness to accomplish it, but you just kind of chip away at it piece by piece by piece by piece, and you gradually work towards it through applying wisdom 
and good, wholesome intention, speech, and actions. So yes, you can pursue change and improve society. An enlightened being is going to be much better at doing that than someone who gets hostile and angry or frustrated or irritated or feels guilt or shame or boredom and loneliness. All this discontent feelings just gets in the way and clouds our judgment and kind of bogs us down. It puts a burden on the mind. So someone who's eliminated all that and has attained enlightenment through this wisdom now seeing social problems in the world, enlightened people are going to be much better at solving these and applying solutions to create change in the world than someone who's unenlightened. We have a follow-up from Joy. So would Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, and Nelson Mandela be good examples of this type of a drive for change without anger? I know about these people's lives to a certain extent, and on one side, I would like to say yes, but I don't know them on a personal level. I have never spent time with them, so I don't know 100% of what they did in their life and what they experienced, but it seems like they did nonviolent, peaceful protests, and that's one of the reasons why they had so much success is because they did it in a peaceful way without anger and hostility, but doing it without violence and in a peaceful way. But at the same time, that again, that word drive that you use, that drive is that craving, desire, attachment, this wanting, these obligations, this expectation, that drive is going to cause the mind to be discontent. We haven't talked about that yet. We're going to talk about it next week. So what I know about the people's lives that you just shared, they had a certain goal. Let's take Martin Luther King, great example. His goal was for African-American people in America to, and really across the world, to experience more civil rights and to be treated fairly as equal people. Well, he had that certain goal in mind, but he didn't just pop out onto the big stage with this aggression and hostility and anger and try to force everyone to see it his way and try to force everyone to change. He gradually built up his campaign little by little by little. And by being a calm, nonviolent, peaceful man, he was able to assemble more and more and more people around him. And they were able to affect social change in the world because they did it without this aggression and hostility, but in a peaceful of a way as they could. And that's why they were successful with these large numbers of people. That's what I was explaining about enlightened people. I'm not saying Martin Luther King was enlightened, but as people awaken more and more and more and they become more peaceful, more calm, more serene, more content, more joyful, more and more people will gather around that person than someone who's angry, hostile, who's lying, who's you know, manipulating people in the background. Nobody wants to be around that person and there'll be a mass exodus around that person. It's only people who are being loving, kind, polite, caring, peaceful, respectful, calm. That's the type of person that people would like to be around and they would want to be involved with that person. So those types of people can usually amass large numbers of people around them to create change in the world if that's of interest to them. But then there's other enlightened people who are just going to be perfectly content being a taxi driver and just making their little bit of money and going home each day. They're not out for that social change. So 
everybody is a little bit different. Just because someone's enlightened doesn't mean that they become a community leader. Everybody serves different roles in the community. But to answer your question, I think the answer is yes, but I don't know if those people are necessarily enlightened. And I would change the way, you know, they weren't really driving. I don't really see Martin Luther King as driven. I mean, sure, he had a certain goal in mind and he pursued that goal, but he wasn't pounding the pavement in a real aggressive way. Same thing with Nelson Mandela and some of the other people that you mentioned. You know, they had certain goals in mind and they pursued those as objectives, as interests, and as something that they were looking to pursue and improve. And they gradually moved in that direction more and more and more as their life progressed. And as they made better and better decisions, their campaign became more and more successful. We have a follow-up from Judith. What about wanting to have a roof or food or some safety? How would that work about the wanting? You should have needs, right? It's not about what you want. Right now, if you see it as you want a roof over your head or you want food or you want clothing, what you have to think about is these aren't necessarily wants, these are needs. Because there's five things that you need to sustain life. You need food, you need water, you need clothing, you need shelter, and you need medical care. These are the five basic needs that every human being needs in order to sustain life. So these are needs, they're not wants. Where they become wants is if somebody's in a certain dwelling and they're somewhat stable in that dwelling with their income and their bills and expenses and so forth, but now the mind wants a bigger house. So now the mind pushes itself because it wants that bigger house because of ego and craving, and it wants that bigger house to show everybody how successful I am. And now it craves this, and it goes out and works and works and works and works, and maybe doesn't spend time with their family. Maybe they you know, really put their nose to the grindstone. They're making haphazard decisions because they're just craving more and more money to get to this bigger and bigger house. So that's what I want is, when somebody is longing and having this strong eagerness for something. But if you have your needs met, this is where the mind can become very peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because if the mind just constantly wants a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger house, that means you're never done working. It means you constantly have to be making a higher and higher amount of income because you're constantly trying to fulfill this craving, this desire, this attachment, this wants. Whereas if you can cut that off and you can train the mind to be content or satisfied with what is, with whatever dwelling you have, because that meets your needs, now you don't have to push yourself as hard in life to just keep acquiring all this wealth for this bigger and bigger house. You can just be content with whatever shelter that you have. And as long as it's meeting your needs, you can sustain that based on the livelihood that you've created. And this is where the mind can become very peaceful. So Amina says, my daughter has a question for David. So Amina's daughter's question is, we live in a place with a lot of noise outside. How can I stop from being annoyed? So we're starting to get into next week's talk because we're talking a lot about craving, desire, attachment. Let's hold this question. I love that she's asking a question and it's her first question, our, our eight-year-old viewer who's with us pretty much every week. 
I love that she's asking a question, but let's hold this for next week because today is all about talking about what is enlightenment and talking about this mental state of enlightenment where next week is really the beginning where we start uncovering what's the problem in the mind and what's causing this discontentedness, right? So let's talk about this next week, Myla. Good stuff. Okay, we have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so let's move into the next part of what I was interested to share with you. Now that you understand what is enlightenment and what the advantages of enlightenment are, let's talk about how do you attain enlightenment, okay? The way that you attain enlightenment is you need to learn teachings with guidance, and then you need to implement those teachings in practice. Because when you learn the teachings with guidance, that's bringing the teachings to your intellectual understanding. And now that you understand them intellectually, now you need to apply these teachings in daily life so that you can see that they're truth and then you have wisdom. And it's this wisdom that you acquire through observing these teachings to be truth that the mind now functions differently in the world. And some of the teachings that you're going to need, some of the main teachings are the Four Noble Truths, which we're going to talk about next week. This is the very first discourse of Gautama Buddha. He explains the, essentially the problem. He explains the cause of the problem. He explains how to eliminate the problem. And he explains the entire path of how to eradicate the problem in the mind in just four simple statements. So next week, not only are we going to discuss the Four Noble Truths, but we're going to discuss the Three Universal Truths. And again, we call them truths because Gautama Buddha knew their truth. I know their truth, but that doesn't help you, right? Nothing's based on belief. It helps you that I know it's truth and I have that wisdom, but now you need to know it's truth and you need that wisdom. And when you learn these teachings, starting with the Four Noble Truths, and you gain the wisdom through applying these teachings in practice, when you have that wisdom, now the mind's going to function very differently in the world. But the Four Noble Truths is the foundational teaching, the very first one that Gautama Buddha taught as a way to help people attain enlightenment on this path. So that's why we're going to cover that at the beginning of this program so that you can learn this very first foundational teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Then the week after that, we're going to discuss the Eightfold Path. This is eight steps that when you learn these teachings intellectually and you apply them in practice, you will see the truth in these teachings and you will awaken the mind to practicing in daily life these teachings. Gautama Buddha never tells you what to do, right? So like an abusive relationship or a lot of sound in your neighborhood. There's always 10 million different answers that could be the right answers. What the Eightfold Path does is it lays out general guidance that helps to awaken your mind to what's called the natural law of gamma. This cause and effect or action and result, the result of your decisions. And by learning the Eightfold Path and implementing this in your daily life, it will lead the mind on this path to enlightenment. So we'll cover that in two weeks' time. Then we'll get into eventually, four weeks from now, we'll get into the five precepts. 
the five precepts are teachings that significantly reduce the unwholesome things that you're doing in the world that's causing harm to others and that's causing harm to you. The five precepts and the Four Noble Truths plug into the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is like the central core teaching of Gautama Buddha, and the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts pretty much plug into this Eightfold Path. But we're going to explore these in different talks, and I've broken them out into different chapters in the book so that we really put a lot of focus on each one of these, and that way you have the detailed teachings of each one of these. So these three are kind of like real core fundamental teachings of the Buddha that are going to provide you the insight and this wisdom that you need to then learn intellectually and then apply in daily life so that you can see that it's actually wisdom as it's actually starting to improve the condition of the mind and condition of your life. Then we're going to get into chapter 13, which is the Brahma Viharas. We kind of talked about these a little bit the other day. These are four mind states that we need to cultivate in the mind, and these are going to lead to beneficial results. This is loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So we're going to cover that in chapter 13. Then a person who is working their way to enlightenment will eventually, after they learn these teachings, they will eventually start focusing on the 10 fetters, which is something we're going to discuss today. The 10 fetters are the 10 individual significant issues in the mind, the problems in the mind. This is like the pollution or the taints of the mind, what's causing the mind to remain in the unenlightened state. So we're going to talk about those today. The 10 fetters, or some people call them the taints. You can think of them as the pollution of the mind, what's polluting the mind and causing all the problems. While the three poisons are kind of a high-level explanation of the problems in the mind, the 10 fetters are a, a level much deeper than that that really pinpoints exactly what the problems are in the mind. And once you eliminate these 10 fetters completely, that's when the mind's actually enlightened, when you've actually eliminated all 10 of these fetters. In this chapter three, there's the seven factors of enlightenment. It's not something that I had plan to talk about today, but we certainly can if anybody has any questions. This is something that also needs to be learned and practiced as you get closer and closer to enlightenment. If you think about the mind in the enlightened mind as being in the middle, and the unenlightened mind kind of waves into this sadness or goes into this happiness and this excitement, as you're making your way to enlightenment, those swings that the mind goes through, this deep sadness to this extreme excitement, it becomes less and less and less and less as the mind comes into the middle. These seven factors of enlightenment are kind of like a real fine-tuning for the mind. Where the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Brahma Viharas, the Ten Fetters, these are like real big, meaty teachings, real deep teachings that really awaken the mind to what the Buddha was actually teaching and helping you to chip off big pieces of wood as you're sculpting this perfect mind, this purified mind. You're chipping off some big pieces of wood where the seven factors of enlightenment are kind of like getting in there and really fine-tuning the mind because as the mind becomes more and more enlightened and it doesn't take these big swings 
to excitement and these big dips to sadness, it's going to start coming into the middle and you need these seven factors of enlightenment to kind of really fine tune the mind and get it to that final destination of the enlightened mind. So an enlightened mind is going to be practicing all these teachings, including the seven factors of enlightenment. And an enlightened mind or someone who's on the path to enlightenment, another thing that they need to learn and implement is extensive meditation training. You wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment with only meditation, as you see here. You need more than just meditation to attain enlightenment. But you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation. And there's a lot of meditation that someone needs to do. This is one of the reasons why when I get the common question of how long should I meditate for each session, I usually don't answer this question directly because the benefits of meditation accumulate over time. And you might get 30 minutes today, an hour tomorrow. Maybe you get five minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the middle of the day. Maybe you get an hour in the evening. All of these benefits are accumulating over the course of your life. So you're going to need this extensive amount of meditation. It's like filling up a bucket with water. Right now, because you don't know these teachings at all, your bucket has holes in the bottom of the bucket. And every time you scoop some meditation into the bucket, while you might feel fine for a little bit, the water pretty much comes out the bottom of the bucket and the mind's right back to where it started from before you actually meditate it because you don't have all the teachings that you need to hold on to the water. So what these teachings are going to do for you is it's going to patch all those holes in the bottom of your bucket and make sure you got a solid bucket. And then as you meditate and you train the mind through all these other teachings and you're scooping the water into the bucket, this water is going to become more and more and more full in the bucket until eventually the water is overflowing with the enlightened mind. The mind, the enlightened mind is going to be overflowing with politeness, overflowing with kindness, overflowing with gratitude and appreciation, overflowing with respectfulness, right? The enlightened mind is going to be overflowing with these various qualities of mind, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. But you can't do that if you've got holes in your bucket. So that's why we teach all of these teachings first, giving you a nice solid bucket. But we need to get meditation underway. And that's why we use the Wednesdays in this program in order to train in meditation because you need to start scooping the water in the bucket even with some holes in the bucket it's okay right now what i'm doing is i'm teaching you how to scoop right in the first two meditation sessions we did i'm just kind of teaching you how to scoop and i know the water's falling out but it's okay we're still scooping and i'm teaching you how to scoop and then as we go through this program you're going to be repairing the holes in this bucket so that now the scoops get held onto in the, the bucket and your water becomes more and more. Back to the question of how long do I meditate, even though you guys didn't ask that. Well, if I'm really thirsty and I'm trying to collect this bucket of water and I go over to the trough, if I can take a half a scoop of water or I can take 10 scoops of water, if I'm really thirsty, if the mind's really thirsty, you know, I'll take the half, I'll take 10, I'll take 20, I'll take five, I'll take six. I'll take whatever I can get at that particular moment in time. If I've set aside some time to meditate 
If I can get one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, however long I can get in meditation, I'm just gonna scoop as much water as I can, calmly as I can, as peacefully as I can, because I need to fill up this whole bucket, right? So that's why this question that I often get is how long should I meditate? I never really give an answer to it because you're gonna need to scoop a lot of water. That's the extensive meditation training. But the beauty is, is that Gautama Buddha only ever taught two styles of meditation. There's some other styles that he taught in order to address very specific problems in the mind, but there's only two primary styles of meditation that you need. So rather than running out and learning 50 or 100 or even 20 or even 10 different meditations and having the mind have to focus on all of those different types of meditation, you only need to learn two styles of meditation. And by limiting it to just those two that's actually required to address the specific problems that Gautama Buddha discovered, now you can deepen your practice. Rather than having this real wide practice of 50 different meditations and just narrowly understanding how to do each one of those meditations, you can actually focus on just two meditations and now you can deepen your practice in each of those meditations and get more and more and more and more benefit out of those meditations because you know them really well and you focused on them and you do them at really deep levels so that you get so much benefit. So anybody who's progressing on this path to enlightenment is going to have to need and progress through extensive meditation training. It's a requirement and there's no way that you could attain enlightenment without meditation. So these are kind of like the bulk of the teachings that one is going to need, but there's even other things outside of this. But this is kind of like the real core of what needs to be learned and understood, but then there's other things as well that we're going to also be exploring in this program as part of this path to enlightenment. Any questions? We have a question from Manal. Is part of having deep wisdom with kindness and respect of enlightenment due to an understanding and recognition that what you are seeing outside of you in the world is actually within you too? Is this a key understanding at all? I understand what you're saying and I can see that a bit. I thought what you were going to say is, is this path to enlightenment, a recognition of what you see in the world is not you and there's no benefit in the mind being upset or frustrated or irritated about all of this stuff in the world because all of this stuff in the world is impermanent and constantly changing. There's no reason for the mind to hold on and crave for all of these things in the world to be different because back to what you were saying is Yes, everything you need to attain enlightenment, you already have. There's a physical body, there's a mind, and there's the breath. As long as you have those three things with the teachings, with guidance, with confidence in your teacher, with access to a teacher and the teachings, you can attain enlightenment. There's no external device. There's nothing that you need to buy, all of these things. Everything that is external isn't dependent on your enlightenment and you attaining enlightenment. It's all internal work in the mind. So I'm not sure if I answered your question there 100%, but I thought that's where you're going with the question is that an enlightened mind is 
as you're on this path is going to recognize that all this external stuff, it's all impermanent and there's no benefit in your mind being discontent that it doesn't benefit you or anyone else in the world to maintain discontentedness. So it's a choice to stay discontent, just like it's a choice to eliminate discontentedness. It's a choice once you get this level of teaching to understand that you can eliminate discontentedness. If someone stays in discontentedness, they're choosing to do so. And it's unfortunate because their mind can be completely liberated from that burden of carrying around all of that discontentedness. Another thing that comes to mind here is the natural law of karma. I know that's something we're going to get to in a few weeks, but essentially that if we do harm to the outside world, if we don't show politeness, if we don't show kindness, then these are things that will inevitably come back to us. Actually, repeat her question one more time for me, Max. I feel like I answered it maybe halfway or 75%. So Manal actually asked this on the previous slide and I chose to ask it now. She, referring to the advantages of enlightenment being deep wisdom, she asks, is part of the deep wisdom of kindness and respect of enlightenment due to an understanding and recognition that what you are seeing outside of you in the world is actually within you too? Is this a key understanding at all? What's outside of the world isn't necessarily inside of you. So if you see hostility in the world, it doesn't mean that that needs to be inside of you, right? Just because there's other people who are hostile and angry and aggressive doesn't mean you need to be hostile, angry, and aggressive. What tends to happen is whatever is inside of our mind, we tend to see that in the world. So this is how the ego will work. It will project itself onto other people and then read that as coming from the other people, but it's actually us. Not that you would do this, Manal, but there's certain people in the world that will meet somebody or just see a post on somebody online and immediately think that this person is nasty or aggressive or wanting money or all this malicious stuff. And they don't even know this person. And there's all this judgment that gets casted onto this person by the individual. So they see in other people what they have in themselves. So as the mind becomes more and more enlightened, you're going to see lots and lots of problems in the world, but you're also going to see lots and lots of kindness and compassion in the world as well, because those qualities are in the mind more and more. So you're going to become much more aware of what's going on in the world, why it's going on, you're going to see a lot more of the problems in the world, but you're also going to see a lot of kindness and compassion in the world, too, that you may not have seen before because the mind was clouded by your own anger or your own hostility or your own frustration. And you might view others who at one time you might have viewed them as being someone that you wouldn't get along with as the mind becomes more enlightened through this wisdom you're going to find a way to let all that go and just relate to this human being as a human being and just be friendly with all people because you're going to see that as being helpful to you and helpful to the world. And you're not going to see any benefit in being angry or frustrated or irritated or any of these other discontent feelings. There's no benefit in it. So the mind is just like, well, why should I allow myself to be irritated? I'm just causing it myself being frustrated and angry just causing it myself. It's like, why do you want to stab yourself with a knife 
when it just serves no purpose whatsoever. So over time, as you train the mind more and more, you can eliminate all this stuff. But what you see in the world doesn't necessarily need to be inside your mind. Okay, we have a question from Uma. If we teach Buddhist teachings to kids from an early age in school or at home, they will become change makers in the society. Do Thai schools teach the kids and make them practice it? It's also mentioned in the chapter in Developing a Life Practice that children at the age of seven also attained enlightenment. Yes, so Buddhist teachings in Thailand are very much center and core to the culture and to what happens here. 95% of the country considers themselves to be Buddhist practitioners, but Thailand doesn't force anybody to do anything. So nobody's forcing the children to learn, but because the parents grew up with this, they are gradually helping the children to learn it. But the parents, by and large, the average person in Thailand wouldn't be able to sit down and explain the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or the five precepts necessarily. They wouldn't be able to explain to you the 10 fetters or the seven factors of enlightenment or what enlightenment is. They just kind of grew up with these things as part of their life and part of their culture. And if they really are looking for the deep teachings, they're gonna go to a temple and learn with a teacher who oftentimes is a monk or a lay person like me. So the Thai people are learning these within their community and it's just become part of who they are as a cultural fabric in the world. And they do expose their children and share these with them and they parent through these teachings. You know, in the West, if we're becoming a new parent, it's kind of common for some people to run out and buy all kind of parenting books to try to figure out how to parent their child. Well, here in Thailand, everybody already knows how to guide children because we guide them through the Eightfold Path and through all of these other teachings. And we teach them how to have right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right on, right on through. So that's how we all parent our children here. And yes, during Gautama Buddha's time, people could get enlightened as early as seven years old. And that was a common thing that occurred during his lifetime because children have less of this craving, anger, ignorance, this self and this ego because they're just being born. They haven't accumulated a whole lot of experiences and traumatic events and ego as part of their life yet. For someone at the age of 30, 40, 50, 60, it's much more challenging for us to actually learn and practice these teachings. It's easier in terms of we have the capacity and the ability to dive into these teachings and understand them in a way that an eight-year-old child doesn't, but we've accumulated a lot of experiences in our life that we have to eliminate. So there's never a wrong time to learn. You know, a few weeks ago, there was someone who was 24 asking, and they said, you know, is this too early for me to learn Gautama Buddhist teachings? Well, in fact, the earlier in life that you learn these teachings and you apply them to your life, the better and better decisions you're going to be making all the way through your life. And you're going to have a much better experience throughout your entire life. One of the things I share with my son at eight years old is I tell him often, I was like, you know, you're going to have such a good life. You know, here I am 46 now and having figured out all of these teachings to be able to share that with him and for him to lead his entire life through these teachings. 
he's going to have a much, 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 much better life than I ever had growing up because I grew up with a lot of hostility and anger, enormous amounts of discontentedness in the mind. And that really affected my life. And I had a very rough life. But now that I've experienced that, being able to share this with a child and then seeing him be able to make better and better decisions in his life, the earlier the people learn these teachings and now start leading your life through this wisdom, you will just have a better and better and better life for yourself because you're not creating harm in the world. So therefore, better and better things are going to be happening for you in this life. Thanks, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay. So let's go to the next part, which is learning about the 10 fetters. Okay. The 10 fetters are the detailed teachings of exactly what are the problems in the mind. We call these the taints. You can think of them as pollution of the mind. There's these 10 fetters. The word fetter itself kind of means like this ball and chain that's kind of like holding you in the unenlightened state or it's holding you in the cycle of rebirth, which we haven't really talked about at all yet, but we will later in the program much more towards the end. Because once you attain enlightenment, not only do you get all those other benefits that we've talked about, but you eliminate this cycle of being reborn and this constant cycle of being reborn into existence and experiencing the misery of this discontent mind. Well, a fetter, this ball and chain that's holding you in the unenlightened state, it's also holding you in this cycle of rebirth. So by eliminating these 10 fetters or these taints or this pollution of the mind, you're eradicating these from the mind to experience enlightenment in this life. And if you experience enlightenment in this life, you escape this cycle of rebirth where you're no longer going to be reborn back into this miserable existence of one of the five realms. So these are individual fetters and let's go through them just real briefly. But any questions you guys have on any of these, we can talk about them. The personal existence view is this concept of a self that gets carried in the mind as we grow and as we develop. We're going to talk about this next week. This relates to the teachings of non-self. And in order to attain enlightenment, one of the fetters that need to be eradicated from the mind is this personal existence view. A human being needs to eradicate this concept of a permanent self because the mind constantly protects the self. And we're looking out for kind of enemies and we're kind of protecting the self and we're kind of fearful about certain things that happen around us. So by eradicating the self, the mind can then reside more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So this is one of the first parts of moving into enlightenment is eradicating the self. The second one is doubt about the teachings. Of course, if you're just starting off this path, there may be some doubt. This kind of goes back to Max's question from the very beginning of this session about, you know, why aren't people comfortable talking about enlightenment or why don't people just talk about it? Well, one is, of course, because people don't know about it. But then what I was getting to in my response was, People have doubt. They have doubt about the teachings. And this doubt, if you have doubt, it's understandable if you're just starting out on this path that you have doubt. And maintain that doubt for now. 
But as you learn the teachings more and more and you see their truth and you gain the wisdom of these teachings and you see your mind going from anger to frustration to irritation to annoyance to that same situation happen and you feel nothing at all, you don't feel the rage of anger that you used to feel in the past, over time of learning these teachings, this doubt about the teaching slowly erodes that you then come to the realization these teachings are 100% in fact leading me to enlightenment. I can see it for myself. My mind, the condition of my mind and my life is improving. The more I learn these teachings, the more I implement them in practice, I'm seeing the improvements. So this doubt about the teachings will gradually dissipate as you progress on this path. And you can't force this. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to believe that the Buddhist teachings work. Well, you might say that verbally and you have that belief, but you've got to know with 100% certainty that these teachings are 100% leading you on this path to enlightenment through your own observation. So you will gradually eliminate any doubt that you have about these teachings and you will gain more and more confidence in the Buddha and his teachings through learning and practicing to see the wisdom and seeing the condition of the mind in your life improving. The third fetter is wrong grasp of behavior and observances. This is something we've already talked about a bit where Gautama Buddha, as he was in the world, he observed how rites, rituals, ceremony, and worship don't lead to this enlightened mental state because it's all about training the mind. So if somebody has wrong grasp of behavior and observances, and they think that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is going to improve the condition of the mind and improve their life, then they've got this pollution. They've got this fetter that's holding them back, right? It's holding them back from being able to attain enlightenment because they're doing all these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, but yet nothing really ever changes for them. So they're still tainted, they're still polluted with this fetter of wrong grasp of behavior and observances. So you need to eliminate that from the mind, realizing that those things don't lead to an enlightened mind. You're not training the mind through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. That's not how enlightenment is attained. So that might be one that you've already eliminated. And if it is, great, you're that much closer to enlightenment. The fourth fetter is central desire. Central desire is pleasure from the senses, from the eyes, the nose, the tongue, the ears, and physical contact on the body. So oftentimes people will have pleasure seeking where they're looking for pleasure, and it's usually going to be through one of these five senses through the eyes, right? They want to see beautiful women or beautiful men or pornography, or they want to see their house look a certain way and they're looking for perfection in their house and they're just looking for everything in the eyes to be pleasurable. And if they see something that's displeasing to the mind, then the mind becomes discontent and they see it through the eyes and now the mind is angered or frustrated because they see their child's room is messy. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't have a clean room, but it's just, okay, I see a messy room and now my mind is discontent because of seeing that through my eyes. 
or a certain nose, right? Like people have certain pleasures that they look for, like perfume or cologne. Doesn't mean those things are bad. People can use those things. It just means that when someone's nose is in a situation where they smell something displeasing, now the mind becomes discontent. So if the mind has this pollution of the mind where it's craving central desire and central pleasures, then when the eyes, nose, tongue, ears, or the physical contact of the body isn't being pleasured, then the mind's going to be discontent. So you need to train the mind over time to get to a point where you're not seeking pleasure through all of these different things. And this is where ultimately someone who may choose to go to the highest stages of enlightenment would choose to eliminate sexual contact from their life. You may not be ready to do that now. You may not ever be ready to do that. But when or if you ever get to the point in the path where you've learned all the other teachings and you've had many, many years of practicing those teachings, you may get to the point where you've chosen, okay, I'm going to choose to eliminate sexual contact from my life. And that may come when you're 20, 30, 50, 60, 80. It's hard to say. It's a personal choice. That's one of the reasons why there's no judgment on this path, because everybody makes personal choices of when or if they choose to eliminate these things. And it's a personal pursuit. It's not about me. It's about you and your practice. So central desire will lead to discontentedness of mind. I'm sure if you've been sexually active, you've had that experience where the mind has really craved sexual contact. And when you didn't have it, the mind became discontent or you felt this longing for sexual contact. So you can actually attain the first two stages of enlightenment while still having sexual contact. But if you choose to move into the third or fourth stage of enlightenment, you're going to ultimately choose on your own whenever that happens or if that ever happens to eliminate sexual contact as part of eliminating this fetter from the mind. And then the fifth one is ill will. This is hatred, anger, hostility, aggression, resentment, frustration, irritation, annoyance, all of these disgruntledness in the mind. And this is something that we're going to talk about in depth later in our program. But when someone has ill will, it's kind of like they're looking out to cause harm to others. And they kind of create these walls between themselves and others through having this ill will towards others. And they apply certain intentions and speech and actions around this ill will. And then because of that harm that they're causing, the harm comes back to them. So in order to attain enlightenment, someone needs to eliminate this ill will as part of that path. And what we're doing with loving kindness meditation is what's eradicating this ill will And by practicing loving kindness meditation to cultivate this loving kindness or this active goodwill without judgment, then we practice it in daily life, which we talked about on Wednesday much more. And we'll talk about it a lot more in this program as we go forward. The reason why we're always talking about that is because it relates to this fetter that you need to eliminate from the mind in order to progress towards enlightenment. So let me pause right here and see if there's any questions on the five lower fetters. 
before we move into the higher fetters. We have a couple of questions about sensual desire. So Joy asks, how do people have sex with their partners without sensual desire? How does procreation happen? You don't. So if someone has chosen to eliminate sensual desire, then they don't have sex. But when or if someone chooses to do that is totally up to them. Usually when someone first starts out on this path, they're learning the Four Noble Truths, they're learning the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Brahma Viharas, they're learning all of these various teachings, they're learning about meditation, they're putting that into practice. And this stuff takes many months and years to get underway. And then as the mind starts realizing more and more and more benefits, you're gonna move through what's called the four jhanas, and then the mind moves through the four stages of enlightenment, which we're gonna talk about today. These four stages of enlightenment have varying degrees of which fetters you actually eliminate. And you choose on your own when you're going to choose to get to the point where you actually eliminate these fetters. But before you get to the elimination of the fetters, you will have had to have first learned and practiced the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, Brahma Viharas, the meditation. You're gonna have a lot of progression before you ever get to these fetters. Even though this is at the beginning of the book, this is something that you really start honing in on much later in practice. This is something that I'm sharing with you now so that you understand what the goal is but you're not actually gonna to get to these things probably until much later. But eventually, if you choose to move into the third or fourth stage of enlightenment, you will choose to eliminate sexual contact. But you may not be at that point now, and that's completely fine. You may never be at that point. You may choose to have sex all the way until you die, and that's completely fine. But if you choose to move to the third or fourth stage of enlightenment, you will eventually choose to eliminate sex from your life. And if all of the world ended up doing that, then of course there would be no procreation. Human existence would cease to exist. And that's essentially what will happen eventually is that all of human existence will cease to exist. Their human beings are not permanent. We won't be on this planet permanently. Eventually we will cease to exist. We have a follow-up from Judith. So we eliminate desire for sex, not because we find sex dangerous or ugly, but because it becomes pointless? Partly, yes. So sex is not immoral. There's no problems with it. It's not dirty. It's a pleasurable experience. You know, people really enjoy it. And if you're feeling sad or lonely or bored, you know, the one thing that you can always turn to is sex, right? And it kind of puts the mind in a different mental state. But that's still a relying on, on this central desire. It's a condition that's causing the mind to have this happiness. It's a condition that's causing these pleasurable feelings. And it's temporary. It's only temporary. An enlightened mind isn't going to need this condition of sex in order to create this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. An enlightened mind is going to be unconditioned. So as you progress in your path to enlightenment, you will start to observe how when there's craving for sex, the mind becomes discontent because this longing and this 
eagerness for sexual contact, it will actually cause the mind to be discontent. And usually naturally on your own, you know, you will gradually diminish your sexual drive. This kind of happens naturally for people as they age anyway. So it's not like you have to rush out and eliminate sex right now. That I would never say that to anybody. But what you'll notice is, yeah, you get to the point where you've progressed so far on this path, you've made such progress, you see the mind becoming so much more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You've gotten these glimpses of enlightenment, but you know that there's still these fetters in the mind, and you might choose at some point in the future to start to eliminate your craving and desire for sex. Like like you said, not because it's immoral or dirty or anything's wrong with it, but just because it leads to discontentedness and it's still a condition that's being held in the mind that the mind is only peaceful when that condition is met. And then once that condition is gone, then the mind becomes discontent again. But in order to get to this ultimate state of enlightenment, the mind has to be unconditioned and not relying on sexual contact for its peacefulness. I'm wondering, David, where craving of certain mental states might slot into this. And somewhere else I've heard them put under sensual desire as though mind objects and the mind being the sixth sense is another way we can gratify our desires. But I'm not sure if that's correct. So say if someone has a craving for excitement, and they have many ways of maybe trying to achieve that, or we have a craving for anything, like a craving to sell our house or a craving for a new job, and these things aren't obviously sensory, where would those kinds of cravings fit into the Ten Fetters? That's part of the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path. It's not part of the individual fetters other than part of ignorance, which we haven't gotten to yet. So the craving to sell your house isn't necessarily a central desire because it's not necessarily pleasing the senses, right? This particular fetter relates to the five senses, not the sixth one, which is the mind, which when we talk about the doorways of discontentedness, we talk about all six, where when we talk about the central desires, we talk about just the five senses. And the same be true, say, for intoxicants, including alcohol so if someone was addicted to alcohol and not necessarily just the taste of alcohol but the feeling of being intoxicated and relying on that as a way to temporary temporarily allay whatever discontentedness they might be feeling would that come under uh, ignorance and that's um, part of ignorance they're unknowing and not practicing the five precepts and hence the eightfold path so they're not fully considering all the consequences of that they're just acting on that impulse, but they're not bringing in to that decision the fact that they're going to you know, feel bad tomorrow, have lower productivity, spend loads of money, all these things, and just do harm to themselves. Yeah, because if someone's on a path to enlightenment and they're purifying the mind, you know, why would you pollute it with a substance that's causing heedlessness? You're looking to evolve the consciousness to this unconditioned mind where it's permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy without any conditions, well, this alcohol or this substance is ignorance and unknowing that it's actually causing you lots of harm. And how could you be purifying the mind if you're using 
substances to create these pleasurable feelings. There's people who are on this path that still drink occasional beers or wine or they drink alcohol and that's just where they are in their practice and that's why there's no judgment from me or other people about where somebody is because I drank plenty as I was progressing in life. There would be no reason for me to judge somebody else for drinking. But eventually, as somebody starts learning and implementing these teachings closer and closer, they start realizing, like, why am I even putting this substance into the body? Here I am meditating every day. Here I am trying to eliminate this discontentedness. But I'm waking up with this groggy mind. I'm getting all excited from this alcohol and saying things that I shouldn't be saying. It's leading to problems in my life. There's really no place for this in my life anymore. And on their own, as they learn and practice these teachings, they will choose when or if you know the right time is to let this stuff go and no longer hold on to it. We have a follow-up from Joy. She says, so having a single drink to relax, which is something I do every few months, would not be as productive as meditating to relax. Right. And probably, Joy, at other times in your life, it was more than once every couple of months. You know, it was more frequent than that. But the fact that you're now having a glass of wine once every couple of months, it shows kind of a diminishing and an extinguishing of this craving for this wine. And what you're going to probably notice over time as you learn these teachings and implement them more and more is you're not going to need the wine. You're not going to have a desire. You're not going to have a longing or an eagerness for this wine. You're going to see it as unbeneficial because the mind is now naturally peaceful through implementing these teachings, which includes meditation. And you'll gradually probably choose to extinguish the use of even once every couple of months having a glass of wine. It'll probably become once every four months and then once every six months and once a year and then eventually you just probably won't even have it anymore and you'll just decide i don't need it i don't want it not important to me and just decide to stop doing it but when or if you ever choose to do that is totally up to you joy says correct i'm also 46 not so young anymore <laughs> yeah yeah so when we were younger you know we drank a lot more and then we kind of realized that, you know, that doesn't have the kind of benefits that we thought it had. And the way the mind works is it has to see the truth for itself, right? That's how it got wisdom. The reason why I know, and some of you also know, most of you probably know, that alcohol is no good for us is because we went down that path. <laughs> you know, we, we indulged in five, eight, 10, 12 drinks or however many drinks in a given day and we spent time perhaps vomiting and tripping over our feet and getting into various situations that were uncomfortable with our friends and our family, maybe even the law, legal problems. We got into these situations and that's where we saw the truth for ourselves, and we got the wisdom and we said, you know, this isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And now that you've dabbled and you got into that, that's when now you've experienced the problems and now you've moved your practice to either taking in less or for some people they've gotten rid of it altogether. And then there's some people out there that have never even had a drink ever in their life and they've just know that it's something they're never going to ever do. And 
they've seen enough truth and gained wisdom through seeing other people have problems and they've just decided they're never ever going to touch a drink. So all of us need to gain this wisdom in some way. And sometimes we gain that wisdom through experience and actually dabbling in it. But what the Buddha is doing is he's giving you so much wisdom and you can test each one of these things that you're going to learn over the course of this program. And you can see how if you learn and practice and you train the mind in the way that the Buddha is teaching you, you will observe for yourself that this is leading the mind to this enlightened mental state. But you've got to experience it for yourself in order to get that wisdom. We have a comment from Raja. Intoxicants spoil the body and then we can't concentrate for meditation. Sure, I agree with that. We have a question from Judith regarding personal existence view. She says, I believe that in Western psychology, there is a requirement for people to have an identity in order to be considered normal and healthy. How does this work with the realization of non-self? Yeah, so the problem with the self in the concept of the self in the mind is when there is a self-identity or there is a self-image that the mind holds on to and it thinks that it's permanent, then the mind wants to protect it and the ego gets wrapped around that so that then if somebody says something or looks at you in a certain way or does something, now the mind feels offended because of the self-image and the self-identity and then the ego gets wrapped in there and then all kinds of harmful things can transpire. So when we talk about realizing non-self, and we relate it to that identity and the image, you still know, having eradicated the self, you still know that you're a human being, that there's this body, there's this mind, but you won't have this protective nature of the self-image. You won't have this strong self-identity that I am a Western man, I'm an American who lives in Thailand, and I should be treated a certain way and you know i'm going to put in all this effort and time to purchase all these things to make myself look a certain way and when i go outside i demand a certain level of acknowledgement of my existence and if i don't get this gratification then i'm going to be discontent i'm going to be angry frustrated irritated and if somebody looks at me or my family in a certain way then i'm going to be protective of that and now there's all kinds of problems that ensue so what realization of non-self or eradicating the personal existence view it's eradicating all of this concept of a permanent self where now the mind starts wrapping ego around it and starts protecting it and starts sabotaging certain situations and getting yourself into problems. So you don't need this strong identity of who you are and what you are and all these labels and categorizations that we put in the mind. I'm American, male, 46 years old, with a wife, with a son, who lives in Thailand, who is a Buddhist, who is a teacher, who does this and does this. When you start kind of categorizing yourself this way and hold this in the mind, 
now it kind of causes you a lot of problems. And oftentimes when there's the self in the mind, when there's this personal existence view, we become very selfish and we tend to hold on to things in a very selfish way and we don't practice generosity. So having this personal existence view in the mind, having the self, it leads to all kinds of problems in relationships in our daily life. We have a question from Joy about ill will. If we are glad someone is arrested for wrongdoing, is that considered ill will? You shouldn't be glad about that. You can just be like, okay, that's good that that's happened. Like, okay, that sorted itself out. But if you're feeling pleasure about it, that's still a condition, right? The mind's condition that it's feeling these pleasurable feelings based on something that's happening. Ill will is more of like a hostility or, oh, like my neighbor always plays loud music. Look, his grass is really long. If I call up the county officials, they'll come and cut his grass and give him like a $500 bill for that grass. And that'll get him back for all that noise that he always makes. That's ill will, right? Like trying to do like negative things to people based on hatred anger, hostility, and aggression that you have, like trying to dig on somebody, trying to do something bad to somebody. Whereas if somebody does something bad and you see them get arrested and you're just like, okay, well, that that's good. It sorted itself out. But if you take pleasure in that, then you're not practicing compassion <laughs> and loving kindness. So you don't, shouldn't take pleasure in seeing something bad happen to somebody. You can just be like, all right, well, that sorted itself out. What's next? Move on. Like, no big deal. So we can understand that if someone is doing a lot of unwholesome things, it may be a good thing that they've become arrested because it's them experiencing their karma. And perhaps right. also it prevents them from doing harm more. Uh, but we do not take pleasure in them becoming arrested thinking that they deserve it as it were because we're not out there to punish people we know that we're all the heirs of our karma and that will take care of itself but but we might know that them experiencing the results of the camera is actually a good thing right it's a good thing and an enlightened mind is unaffected by what goes on in the world so if this person is doing a lot of harmful things in the world for two years, 10 years, 20 years, and nothing ever catches up to them, the mind is unaffected by that. Sure, you see the problems. Sure, you know that they're doing bad things. But if you're like, oh man, he always does all these bad things and he never gets caught and oh my goodness, like five years, 10 years, 20 years, look at that, like nothing ever bad happens to them. Well, that's because you don't see their entire life and what's going on in their entire life. But that's that longing and that craving for something bad to happen to them. So the mind should be unaffected if somebody is selling drugs and you see them selling drugs and they're never getting caught. Okay, well, that's their life and whatever happens, happens. It doesn't mean that you don't call the police if you choose to do that, but you have to do that in a wise way that you don't get yourself into problems by doing that. If you're going to kind of create some karma through you being the person who calls the police, you have to do that in a way that doesn't harm you, right? But if somebody does get arrested for selling drugs, for example, you shouldn't take pleasure in that either. You know, the mind should just be unaffected by whatever goes on around you. And that's kind of hard to hear when you've never experienced 
this enlightened mental state that that's where you ultimately get to. Like you can't imagine going through the world and being unaffected by sorrowful and sad things, unfortunate situations that happen. And you can't imagine the mind being unaffected by pleasurable things. You can't imagine that because you've never experienced it. But ultimately, that's what the mind gets to, where it's unaffected by whatever goes on around you. Thanks, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so let's talk about the five higher fetters. Because the first three stages of enlightenment, which we're about to get to, you will have eradicated the five lower fetters. But in order to get to actual enlightenment, which is the fourth stage of enlightenment, you will have needed to eliminate the five lower fetters and the five upper fetters. And by this point, the mind should be really well trained when you start working on these five upper fetters, all 10 of these, right? So you will be really well tuned in to really be honing in on these five upper fetters. The first one is desire for form. This is eliminate the desire to be reborn into either the animal realm or the human realm. There's some people who have a desire to be reborn back into the human realm. And there's some traditions of Buddhist teachings that tell you that's the whole goal is to be reborn. But that's not what the Buddha actually taught. That's a misunderstanding of those traditions of Buddhist teachings. If there's craving, if there's a desire, if there's a longing with a strong eagerness to be reborn as an animal or a human, then there's still craving and the mind can't be enlightened. So you have to eliminate the desire to exist in form of either an animal or a human. And then the seventh fetter is you need to eliminate the desire to be born into one of the formless realms. This is hell, afflicted spirits, and heavenly realm. Because a lot of people have a desire to die and go to heaven, right? And that's kind of what a lot of us have been taught growing up. But if there's this craving, if there's this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness to be reborn into one of these realms, hell, afflicted spirits, or heaven, then there's going to be rebirth. And I know this may sound strange to you guys, but there are people who would like to go to hell, right? There's people like that in the world. And there's people who would like to become an afflicted spirit. And of course, there's plenty of people who aspire or desire or want to go to heaven. You have to get to the point where you don't have any craving for existence of any kind by eliminating desire for form or desire for the formless. Okay, so that's those two fetters. The eighth fetter is eliminating conceit. This is arrogance, pride, judging or measuring and comparing yourself to be superior or inferior to other people. This is where the ego becomes completely dissolved. Part of the ego gets addressed in that first fetter, the personal existence view, but there's still ego there. You can eliminate the self and still have ego. So here in this upper fetters, these higher fetters, you need to eliminate all arrogance, pride, judging, measuring or comparing yourself to be above or below people because this is destructive to the mind. If you look at yourself as being above others, that's destructive to the mind. We understand that really well 
that that ego, that arrogance, that conceit, that judging of others, putting yourself above others is very destructive to the mind that we need to view everybody as equal. But also, there's people who also put themselves below others. And this can be just as destructive, if not more destructive, as putting yourself above people. So you can't put yourself below others either. You have to be able to see all humans as being equal, okay? That's what eliminating conceit is, just completely dissolving the ego 100%. And this takes a lot of time and a lot of work. The ninth fetter is restlessness, okay? This is where the mind becomes distracted or confused. This is where the mind becomes overactive. Like you'll see people that are kind of like shaking or like they're sitting and talking and they're bouncing their leg up and down. You know, they're bouncing their foot, their knee is bouncing up and down. This is restlessness. If the mind is overactive, then you're going to see it in the body. You're going to see people tapping, you know, tapping a lot. You're going to see their leg shaking. You're going to see lots of repetitive movement. But if you eliminate restlessness, i.e. you develop singleness of mind, then the mind can be singularly focused, concentrated, focused, clarity of thought with deep memory where there's no restlessness in the mind and you won't see any restlessness in the body. So just like the mind is completely stable, very peaceful, very calm, very serene, you'll see that in the body of someone who's enlightened. You won't see their leg tapping. You won't see them tapping their fingers. You won't see this real active mind. You'll see there will be very singularly focused on conversations and topics and discussions. If they're presenting to an audience, they're going to be very singularly focused and very concentrated with the mind. So you need to eliminate restlessness of the mind and develop this singleness of mind. And then the last fetter is ignorance. We call it ignorance, but the Buddha didn't really use this word ignorance because that's more of a derogatory term the way we use it today. I describe this more as the unknowing of true reality. Okay, unknowing of true reality. What unknowing of true reality is, is an unenlightened mind is going to be unknowing of things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts. The unenlightened mind is going to be unknowing of the natural law of gamma. It's going to be unknowing of the cycle of rebirth. It's going to be unknowing of things like impermanence and discontentedness. It's going to be unknowing of the self and non-self. It's going to be unknowing of these teachings. So someone who's fully eradicated ignorance is going to know these teachings inside and out, backwards and forwards, and they're going to be practicing the teachings. Because there's people who might understand these teachings intellectually, but you need to see them in practice. Because if somebody understands them intellectually, they haven't necessarily eradicated the unknowing of true reality in the mind because they might know them intellectually, but they're not practicing it on a daily basis. So you could have somebody who will teach you all about right speech on the Buddha's path to enlightenment, the Eightfold Path. They'll tell you everything about right speech that you'd ever want to know, but they're not actually practicing the right speech. 
because the mind still has this unknowing of true reality, they haven't taken those intellectual teachings and moved them into practice. Someone who's eradicated this particular fetter will not only understand these teachings intellectually, but you'll see them practicing them on a daily basis and they'll never experience any discontentedness. They'll have this unshakable mind, this calmness, this peacefulness, this deep, profound memory, this clarity of thought, lots of concentration with all the other attributes of things that we've been talking about, things like loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, all these various things that I'm going to share with you in this program is going to help you to eradicate this unknowing of true reality because the mind is then going to be awakened to what it takes to attain enlightenment. We have a question from Robert. He says, how do I avoid taking pride in my achievements towards Nibbana early in my practice? Probably early in your practice, you are going to have some pride and you're going to feel accomplished. You're going to feel good about it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing early on because, you know, the unenlightened mind needs that kind of motivation and that encouragement. And you need to see that you're stepping forward and that you're making progress. But where the pride comes in is if you think you're so great and you're so wonderful and you want to share with other people and look how wonderful I am. I'm on this path to enlightenment. And, you know, you start becoming very prideful and kind of displaying that to others, then that's going to cause problems for yourself. But if inside the mind early on, if you're using it as motivation, you're like, wow, I'm really getting this stuff. Like this is really making sense to me and I'm committed to meditation and it's improving the quality of my mind. This is good. This is a good thing. Then that's okay. But when you start becoming kind of arrogant or prideful about it, that's when the problems come in. So you need to maintain your learning and your practice and know that it's a good, wholesome thing that you're doing and you're doing this to improve the quality of your mind, but don't try to put yourself above others and become prideful that you're doing this and that you're going to be so much better than others. But just do it as a good, wholesome thing for yourself and your own practice and see that as a important pursuit for your life to improve your life. You're doing this unrelated to anybody else around you. Sure, others are going to benefit from you being a more kind, polite, peaceful, respectful person, but your singular focus is on your own mind and you're doing this because it's good, wholesome teachings for your life and it's leading you in a good direction for yourself, if there was a self. <laughs> we have a question from Amina. On the path working towards eliminating the 10 fetters, is there a bit of back and forth or once the fetter is eliminated, it doesn't come back. Right. I'm thinking about some oh, sorry. of the symbols you shared towards the end of the book, the symbols of enlightenment showing that the path can be winding. What happens is as you're eliminating these fetters, you might feel that for two months or three months or six months that these certain ones are, are gone, right? And then what happens is the ego kind of starts like, oh, wow, look, like I haven't had sex for like six months or a year. Like this whole sensual desire thing is gone. Like, wow, I'm kind of like feeling good about that. But then like the craving might raise up a year later or six months later and like, whoa, like where'd that come from? Right. So it was never really gone to begin with. 
It's just that the mind and the ego convinced you that it was gone. And then six months later, when it rises back up, the mind might think, oh, that's come back because you assume that it was gone to begin with. But in reality, it wasn't really gone. It was just significantly diminished. And now it hadn't risen back up for six months later. So once they're gone, they're gone. They're gone, 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 gone. And they'll never come back. But you'll probably have periods for three months or six months or a year, who knows, where you'll think it might be gone, but then the craving will kind of rear its head a little bit. And this is why you can't really draw a line in the sand and say, two minutes ago, I wasn't enlightened. And today, two minutes later, I am enlightened, right? A lot of people think that the Buddha became enlightened instantly. And as you see here, in order to become enlightened, you have to gradually eliminate all these fetters. And that happens gradually. That's what the Buddha said in his teachings, that this is a gradual progression to enlightenment because you're gradually diminishing all of these fetters in the mind. And there's never going to be a time where you say two minutes ago, I wasn't enlightened and now I'm actually enlightened because you're not going to be able to draw a line in the sand and say, well, when was that sexual craving 100% eliminated? Because you're going to go through periods where, you know, you'll have a couple of months where you won't have any interest in sex, perhaps. And then it'll rise up and you'll maybe have some sexual contact and then it might diminish for a few months, six months, a year, and then it might come up again. So you never can really draw a line in the sand where you say, okay, this fetter is now 100% gone. But by having awareness of what these fetters are, and then as you progress in your practice and you start focusing in on these fetters, if you see one of the fetters arise, you know, okay, there's still work to do here. I still need to work on this and let me work on this some more. So this is why a really truly enlightened person should never convince themselves that they're actually enlightened, but instead remain vigilant that as they observe any of these qualities of mind that happen to rear up, you immediately diminish it and eliminate it from the mind right? That you never assume that the ego's gone. You never assume that ill will's gone. You never assume that you're completely eradicated ignorance. You just always pursue deeper and deeper amounts of wisdom. You always pursue ensuring there is no ego in anything that you think or say or do. So just never assuming that you're Enlightened is a great way that if any of these fetters, as they're starting to diminish, as you see them rise up, you can get rid of them right away. The language that the Buddha used is he said, a wise person will see the danger in these fetters. He'll see or she will see the danger of sensual desires. Because as you get closer and closer to enlightenment and maybe most of these fetters or all of these fetters have been completely gone for, say, six months. When one of these fetters rise up, you will see the danger in that. Because if you pursue that, then you know that discontentedness is coming back. Because if your mind's been completely content and peaceful for six months, as one of these fetters rise up, that's a potential for the mind to once again become discontent 
you've enjoyed this peacefulness for six months. And as soon as you see that fetter, you'll see the danger in it. You're like, no, 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 no. Let's get rid of that. And you'll have a way of doing that because you've already eliminated so much as part of this practice and as part of this path. You won't allow these fetters to continue that you'll slowly work to diminish them. But once they're gone, they're completely gone. But you're not necessarily going to know and draw a line because they can appear to be gone, but they're really not. They're just kind of dormant for a period of time. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, so the last thing I was going to share with you guys is the four stages of enlightenment. The four stages of enlightenment, and then we're going to talk about the fifth being a Buddha. As you learn the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Brahma Viharas, you learn the seven factors of enlightenment, extensive meditation training, and over the months and years of progressing through this path, and you start chipping away at these 10 fetters, you will start kind of honing in on these four stages of enlightenment. And before you get to these four stages, there's four jhanas or these deep meditative states that you experience. So once you kind of get a lot of these teachings underway and you're practicing them, the mind will start going through these four jhanas. And you're going to be working really close with the teacher by the time you start experiencing those and I'll kind of know and I'll be able to help you through those jhanas and start working your way into the four stages of enlightenment. The first stage of enlightenment is called stream enterer. This is a person who's eliminated the first three fetters. They would have eliminated personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, and wrong grasp of behavior and observances, and be practicing all those other teachings that I talked about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Brahma Viharas, and all that other stuff. So this person who's attained this first stage of enlightenment, their life's going to be pretty decent, but they're going to still have sensual desire, and they're still going to have ill will. They're still going to have all this other stuff, like conceit and restlessness and all this other stuff. But their life is going pretty well. They've experienced a good amount of benefits from these teachings. And if this person dies in this state of stream entry, then they will be reborn back into the human world because essentially their mind has become more and more human. If they die, they will be reborn no more than seven times. And ultimately they will attain enlightenment. That's why we say that they've entered the stream. They're a stream enter. They're on the stream to ultimately attain enlightenment and no more than seven rebirths. Right. But each one of those rebirths in the human realm, they're starting all over again. Even though they've eliminated the three lower fetters, they're still going to have those fetters being reborn into a new existence and a new mind. So they're going to have to you know, relearn how to walk, how to talk, how to eat, how to do all the same things that they used to do before in their human existence. They're going to have to redo all of that stuff again. But it's going to be a bit easier for them in these teachings because they've already done it once, but they still are going to have to redo all of that. Then the second stage of enlightenment we call once returner because this person only comes back to the human realm one more time. Okay. A once returner would have already eliminated the three lower fetters and they would have thinned the fourth and fifth fetter, meaning central desire would have been diminished but there's still a central desire there. 
ill will would have been diminished, but there's still some residual ill will there. This is called a once returner because if they die, they will be reborn one more time into the human world and that's when they'll attain enlightenment. Then there's something called a non-returner. This is the third stage of enlightenment. This person would have eliminated all five of the lower fetters. So personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, wrong grasp of behavior and observances, sensual desire and ill will would be completely eliminated and this person would be a non-returner, meaning they don't come back to the human realm. If they die in this mental state, they will be reborn into the heavenly realm. Because if you notice, they still have these five upper fetters. A person who's a non-returner, they're not yet enlightened. They're experiencing lots and lots and lots of benefits from these teachings and their life is pretty darn peaceful, but they still have discontentedness occasionally. They still have some residual cravings from these five upper fetters. They still have those there. So there's still some residual craving, desire, attachment. So they're occasionally still experiencing discontentedness, but they've eliminated these five lower fetters. And if they die, they will be reborn into the heavenly realm. In the heavenly realm, they can attain enlightenment from there. Heavenly beings have the ability to attain enlightenment, but oftentimes they lack motivation because in the heavenly realm, there's so much pleasant feelings. There is no painful feelings and there is no neither painful nor pleasant feelings like boredom or loneliness or shyness. None of those feelings exist. They only experience pleasant feelings. So oftentimes when beings are in the heavenly realm, they lack the motivation to learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment. So oftentimes they get reborn from that realm down into another realm, whether it's one of the lower realms or back into the human realm from that heavenly realm. But from this human existence, they don't return for the next existence into the human realm, but they do get reborn into the heavenly realm and they can potentially then be reborn back into either the human realm or one of the other lower realms. So that's the third stage of enlightenment. They will have eliminated all the five lower fetters. The highest stage of enlightenment is an arahant. This is the fourth stage of enlightenment. An arahant would have eliminated all the five lower fetters and all the five upper fetters as well. So every single fetter we talked about will have been eliminated from an arahant's mind through learning with teachers, through practicing the teachings, independently observing the truth, refining their practice more and more and more, an arahant is now enlightened. Their mind is completely and fully enlightened as an arahant. They no longer experience any discontentedness and all of those advantages and everything I described about what is enlightenment, that is an arahant, okay? All these other lower stages of enlightenment, they're not yet enlightened. You're not actually enlightened until you attain arahant, which is all 10 of these fetters are completely gone. That's what an arahant is. And they've done that through learning and practicing with teachers to then 
practice the teachings and obtain the results of this enlightened mind. A Buddha is completely different than all of these. A Buddha isn't a stage of enlightenment because a Buddha is actually an arahant. A Buddha has eliminated all of these 10 fetters from the mind, but they did it with their own pursuit. They did it without the help of any teachers whatsoever. They didn't have somebody sit down, explain the teachings to them, teach them the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Ten Fetters, the Brahma Viharas, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. They didn't get meditation training and teaching from teachers. A Buddha has attained this mental state of enlightenment as an Arahant on their own through their own journey, their own pursuit. And having done so, will have deep, deep, deep wisdom about the teachings that lead to enlightenment. They will have self-discovered, self-realized teachings that through their own awakening on their own, they now awaken, share those teachings with other people, and now those people become awakened and enlightened as well through the Buddhist teachings. Because he discovers the teachings, because a Buddha discovers these teachings and they're self-discovered, they have deep, deep wisdom. They can lead countless other people to enlightenment during their lifetime. Then once they die, people continue to attain enlightenment through the Buddhist teachings. That's what a Buddha is, is they're self-awakened, their teachings then become shared during their lifetime to awaken countless other people during their lifetime. And then upon their death, they will have shared the teachings so wide and so deeply that now the people who are left behind are going to continue to share that person's teachings. And then after the Buddha's death, more and more and more and more people are going to continue to attain enlightenment. This is what a Buddha is. The last Buddha currently known to the world existed over 2,500 years ago. There are some traditions of Buddhist teachings that tell you that everybody's a Buddha, that you're a Buddha, and that if you become enlightened, you've attained Buddhahood or you're a Buddha. This isn't what the Buddha actually taught. This is a modification of his teachings. A Buddha is self-awakened through that self journey, that self-discovery, that self-pursuit, that self-awakening to enlightenment, that independent pursuit, they then share those teachings during their lifetime. Countless other people become enlightened. And then after their death, countless more people become enlightened through their teachings. And that's what Gautama Buddha is, or the Buddha. Some people call him Sukiyama Buddha. There's all these different names for him. The most general one is the Buddha, right? So he existed over 2,500 years ago, and we know he was a Buddha because when you see him in, during that lifetime, people saw him be calm and peaceful and content and serene and joyful. As he shared his teachings, more and more and more and more people attained that same mental state. And then when he died, more and more and more people continue to experience that mental state. And that's how we know that he was a Buddha because people are experiencing enlightenment through his teachings. So there was that one Buddha 
that existed 2,500 years ago. Some people say there were Buddhas before him, but based on his own words, I don't know that that's necessarily true. And during his life, he said that there's going to be another Buddha who appears 2,500 years after his death. So a Buddha is a very rare and unique individual that has discovered these teachings and then shares them to help countless other people become enlightened during their lifetime and afterwards. So you can become enlightened, you will be an arahant, but you won't be a Buddha because you're learning, you're needing to learn from a teacher. And you don't have the ability or the capacity to be a Buddha, so it doesn't make sense for you to go out and try to become a Buddha because we already have a Buddha who existed 2,500 years ago, shared these teachings, and now you can learn these teachings today and progress on this path and experience this mental state of enlightenment. But you'll never be a Buddha. And even when you become an Arahant or enlightened, a really truly enlightened person probably is never going to consider themselves as enlightened and just continue to progress for more and more wisdom as they move forward in their life. We have a question from Javier. How do you come to believe in these realms of existences and the cycle of rebirth, etc.? Did Gautama Buddha teach this? And does it come from the Hindu religion? You should never believe anything in these teachings whatsoever. There's nothing that you should ever believe. The way that people understand these realms of existence is there's some people in the world that have observed their past lives and they've observed their existences in those various realms through those past lives. So as the mind awakens, you will get more insight into your past lives, potentially. Not everybody that attains enlightenment sees their past lives. But as you awaken your mind and you get to this higher consciousness, the mind starts to potentially become observant of past lives. The way I explain it is... If you're in your city and you walk out your front door of your house, you know what's going on on that street and you look around on the street and you know what's going on in that street. But you don't know what's going on on other streets. You don't know what's going on on other towns and other cities. However, if you drove up to the top of a mountain and you overlooked the city, you'd be able to see more of the city all the various streets in the city and how that city connects to other cities. So as the mind awakens and you start eliminating these fetters and the mind isn't burdened by these fetters, oftentimes the residual memories of past lives come into your awareness and you can start seeing past lives in these various realms. And this is how Gautama Buddha discovered these realms. And this is how People even today and all throughout history have observed these same realms as Gautama Buddha. I don't know much about Hinduism, but Gautama Buddha's teachings are unique to him as far as I know. And the five realms that he taught are unique to his teachings. Because of impermanence and many different Buddhist traditions teaching lots of different things, you will see people that will teach six realms or eight realms or ten realms or 32 realms or all these different realms of existence, but Gautama Buddha only taught five. And I can confirm for you that these five realms of existence exist because I've seen it as 
my mind awaken as I learned these teachings, I observed these realms as well. And I didn't understand what Gautama Buddha taught about the cycle of rebirth until I had these experiences. I had these experiences first, and then as I learned his teachings months later, that's when it explained to me what was going on in the mind and why I was having these experiences. So some people might say, well, if you learn the teachings first and then you have the experiences, those teachings kind of conditioned your mind to have those experiences. But that wasn't my situation and my experience whatsoever. I had the experiences first and started observing various things in the mind. And then months later, when I explored the Buddhist teachings, his teachings explained what I experienced. So that's how I know that his teachings on the cycle of rebirth and these five realms of existence is 100% truth because I had those experiences myself first. And then when I read his teachings, it was like, whoa, he's explaining exactly what I experienced. So that's how I know his teachings are true. But what really matters for you and any practitioners who are starting out on this path is whatever happened in the past is in the past. Whatever lives, whatever existences you had, whatever realms you were in before, it's all in the past. It has no bearing on what's happening right now in your present life at all. What may or may not happen in the future with the cycle of rebirth, it's in the future. It may or may not even ever actually happen. What's important is that right now you're in the human realm, the human world. This is the absolute best place for you to learn and train the mind to create this wisdom to evolve the mind to enlightenment and escape this whole cycle of rebirth. Whether you ultimately come to know that the cycle of rebirth is true or not, some point in the future, that may happen. You may observe past lives and you may know with 100% truth that the cycle of rebirth is true. But right now, I suggest for most people, especially if you grew up thinking you only have one life, is set the whole cycle of rebirth thing to the side, set the whole five realms of existence to the side, and just focus on learning the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, all those other teachings, including meditation, to train the mind to awaken. The more and more the mind awakens, you may start getting insight into these five realms or into the cycle of rebirth. When or if that ever happens is yet to be determined, but you're never going to get those answers if you don't first focus on a couple of those leaves that the Buddha talked about, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the meditation. If you don't first start there and awaken the mind, you're never going to get to the other answers. And you're never going to have all the answers before you actually start practicing. You need to start somewhere. And that's what we're going to do next week, which is start with the Four Noble Truths. And as you start there and you start seeing the truth more and more and more, as your mind awakens, you may end up getting your truth about these five realms in the cycle of rebirth. But don't believe any of it. If you don't have evidence of the cycle of rebirth and the five realms at this point in your life, just set those questions to the side and focus on the core teachings. And then should there ever be a time where you observe past lives, then you'll have the truth and you'll know the truth 100%. But you'll never get there if you don't start from the beginning.
We have a question from Joy. Would the Dalai Lama be an Arahant? The Dalai Lama, based on his own words, is not yet enlightened. He practices the Vajrayana tradition of Buddhist teachings. And when he first wrote about COVID-19, he was talking about his fear. He was talking about suffering and his own suffering and things like this. So based on his own words, he's not yet enlightened. I don't know anything more than that, just that he's not enlightened because he still experiences discontentedness. He still experiences fear and other things like this. So he's not an otter hunt as far as I understand, based on his own words, but that can always change. You know, that was four or five, six months ago. But the tradition of teachings that he practices is very different than this. This is the Theravada tradition, which dates back to the lifetime of the Buddha that was existing during his actual lifetime. The tradition of Buddhism that the Dalai Lama practices came much later after the Buddha's death, and they modified and changed a lot of the teachings. Some people that are coming from a Christian, even a Catholic background, they look at the Dalai Lama as like the Pope, but that's actually not true. The Dalai Lama is just another monk that exists amongst all the various Buddhist monks. He's a very well-known monk. He's someone who people are very aware of because he's gotten a lot of publicity, but he's not kind of like the patriarch of all of Buddhism. There's nobody who exists like that. There is no central organization with one figurehead at the top of all of Buddhism. That's not how these teachings work. So he's practicing a completely different tradition of Buddhism than this. Based on his own words, he's not enlightened and he's not like the figurehead for all of Buddhism. He's just one other monk who's out there learning and practicing and sharing whatever teachings that he has that he's trying to help in whichever way he knows how to help. But it's not these teachings that you would learn from the Dalai Lama. He's practicing a completely different tradition of Buddhist teachings. We have a question from Deborah. Why would someone be reborn into the human realm if they have a disability, for example, a brain injury, that prevents them from understanding the teachings? I'm asking this because my grandson has cerebral palsy. Yeah, where somebody is born in what realm is based on their gamma from their previous life. So in order to attain this human state that we are now all experiencing, through all of our countless, countless lives in our past, all the various decisions that we made as animals, as afflicted spirits, or whatever other beings that we were, even if we were humans in the past, it has not resulted in us attaining enlightenment. We haven't attained enlightenment in our previous existences. So therefore, we were reborn multiple, countless times. But in all those previous rebirths, we made good enough decisions that led us to this human birth. And now that we're human, we have the opportunity to learn and practice these teachings, see the truth for ourselves, eliminate this discontentedness in the mind, and experience enlightenment where we will no longer be reborn again. So your grandson being reborn into this life with cerebral palsy, this is his existences from his previous lives led him into this existence as a human being in this life. Okay, well, I have 
one more question myself, David, and that is simply, who can attain enlightenment? Everybody and anybody can attain enlightenment. If you have the ability to learn and practice these teachings, you can attain enlightenment. There's even people who attain enlightenment who don't have any access to these teachings at all. Some people attain it at death because if you look at these 10 fetters, one of the things that's really interesting about these 10 fetters, I'm going to go back to this. If you look at these 10 fetters, these things tend to extinguish by themselves over the course of someone's life. So if we look at the personal existence view, the self-identity, the self-image, as we age, you guys know that we become less interested in putting on the beautiful clothes and putting on the makeup and having the hair exactly correct before you go outside. As we age, that personal existence view starts to diminish for a lot of people naturally, right? As we age, we start becoming less interested in sexual activity, typically. Not for everyone, but typically. As we age, for some people, we start to eradicate this ill will, right? So all of these fetters start to kind of slowly diminish as we age more and more and more. So some people can actually attain enlightenment at death. But why take the chance of whether that's actually going to occur or not and experience an entire lifetime of discontentedness? when you can actually actively learn and practice these teachings to eliminate the fetters in this life and experience the rest of this life with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So as long as someone has the capability of learning and practicing these teachings, they can train the mind to eliminate these 10 fetters. Anybody, male, woman, transgender, straight, gay, you name it, whatever categorization you want to place on a person, whatever label you want to place on a person, all beings that are in the human realm, if you have the capacity to learn and practice these teachings, you can attain enlightenment. With that said, you will hear some people say that only men can attain enlightenment. You might hear that in some venues, some communities, which is completely false. It's not true. You'll hear some people that will say only ordained practitioners can attain enlightenment. That's not true. Household practitioners can attain enlightenment as well. You'll hear some people that will say if you prefer same gender relationships, you can attain enlightenment. That's not true because none of these 10 fetters, right? These are the things that are inhibiting enlightenment. None of them are based on gender. None of them are based on sexual orientation. None of it. So as long as you can learn and practice the teachings, you can attain enlightenment to train the mind to eradicate and eliminate these 10 fetters. doesn't matter what label you want to place on somebody. As long as there's the capacity, the interest, the dedication, the commitment, you have a teacher, you get guidance, you place those teachings into practice to observe that they're true, you gain that wisdom, you can train the mind and evolve to this enlightened mental state. Thanks, David. We have a question from Jyoti. She asks, how many births left does a once returner have? Just one. So if someone is a once returner, which is the second stage of enlightenment, they will be reborn back into the human world. And in that birth, they will then attain enlightenment they will become an otter hunt 
in that next life. So what a being can experience, right, is say you've had countless animal births, which all of us have had, and you may not even know that right now, but you have. You've had countless animal births and potentially other realms as well. Now you can land into the human realm. You can eventually get access to these teachings and you can become a stream enter and die, right? So now you die and eventually you're reborn right back into the human world. Now you go through the walking, talking, learning how to eat, everything. You make your way back to the teachings. You start learning the teachings, practicing the teachings all over again, still working on all of these teachings. You move into a stream enter and you can actually die again from that point, right? Because you up to seven times, you're going to be potentially reborn. But also you could come back as that second human birth and rather than just being a stream enter, maybe you progress to a once returner in that second human birth. And you may be on that second human birth now. You don't know, right? And now you make your way up to a once returner. And then you die as a once returner. You might come back for a third human birth. And now on that third human birth, you're going to attain enlightenment for sure as an Arahant. Right. But you won't know that until you actually progress through the teachings. And if you happen to see your past lives, you may end up observing, you know, that, oh, wow, I've had two previous lives. That first life was a stream enter. That second life was a once returner. And now a third life, if you've attained enlightenment, you will know like, OK, that's what happened in those other two previous births. So each of these stages of enlightenment are going to produce rebirth except for that very last stage. And once you get to that last stage, that's when you're actually enlightened and the mind is completely peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. You've eradicated all those 10 fetters from the mind and now there will not be any rebirth whatsoever. And this is what the Buddha did on his own by himself without any guidance from any teachers or anyone else. He figured it all out by himself. That's what a Buddha is. Thank you, David. We have a question from Jacqueline. Could we see others' past lives? There are some people that have that. So as the mind starts to awaken, and when I say starts to awaken, it's practicing the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. It's starting to do a lot of meditation. The mind is eradicating some of these fetters. Oftentimes, there are certain abilities that people acquire. They have psychic abilities. People can see past lives of their self or others. There's all kinds of, let's just say, special abilities that start to happen as the mind awakens. And the Buddha talks about this in his teachings. And there's some people who become psychic even in the unenlightened state. And then as they become more and more enlightened, they become more and more psychic. But there's also people who aren't psychic when they're unenlightened. But as they become more and more enlightened, they actually become psychic and they can actually see the future or they can see people's past lives or they can see auras around people. Different people at different stages of enlightenment will have these different abilities. But if somebody's showing off that ability or someone's using that ability to make money or somebody's real prideful about these abilities and they're holding on to them really tightly, 
then they're not going to make it to enlightenment. You have to even get to the point where as these special abilities start becoming aware to you that you have these special abilities, you can't even hold on to those special abilities and you need to just let them go because the goal is complete liberation of the mind. If you hold on to these special abilities of being psychic and seeing people's past lives and seeing auras and all these things, then the mind's still holding on. So you, the Buddha talked about how these things will start happening in the mind, but my advice to you is not to hold on to them. It's just to let them go and move towards complete liberation where the mind isn't holding on to anything, including these special abilities. And certainly don't pursue this path and progress on this path for these special abilities. Because if you crave these things and you're pursuing this path in order to become psychic, then you're pursuing this path for the wrong reasons and things are probably going to get pretty hectic for you. You need to pursue this path for enlightenment, for arahant. That should be everybody's goal. Just shoot for the moon, right? Is pursue and have the goal, the interest, the objective to obtain arahantship and anything else you experience along the way, the jhanas, the three lower stages of enlightenment, any psychic abilities or any special abilities that you experience as part of this path, just let it go and focus on being an arahant, eradicating all 10 fetters. We're going to follow up from Judith. So these abilities, are they a byproduct of practice or do they have a purpose? I say they're both. They're definitely a byproduct of learning and practicing, but I also feel that they have a certain benefit as well because I saw this in my situation. At one point in time, spirits were able to communicate with me, spirits that had moved on, people who had died. And when people were coming around me, I was able to tell them about their family members that had died and certain things that those family members wanted them to know. And these were people that like, I didn't know. I was just at a temple and people came to learn with me and I would just say, hey, are your parents alive? And she said, no. I said, okay, so somebody died. You know, if you had the opportunity to talk to this person, would you be interested to know what they have to say? And she said, yes, I would. And I said, okay, so we started talking. And what I discovered and shared with this girl is her father died when she was very, very young. She was like still a toddler. And she never knew why her dad died. And she always craved for understanding of who her dad was and why he died. Like nobody in her family understood why he died at all. But I was able to tell her why he died and give her some guidance that her dad wanted her to know. And this really helped her a lot. Of course, she cried and she was tearful, but she really thanked me a lot after our talk. And we talked a couple of days after that, too. And this served a real purpose for her because her mind was holding on to craving and wanting to know about her father and understanding about her father. And there was probably other people in her family who were curious about why he died also. And if there wasn't this ability for somebody to give them that information, those people would have maintained that craving, that desire, that attachment, that longing, that strong eagerness, and they would have never been able to get to enlightenment. But by them coming in contact with somebody who was able to share information with them, it allowed them to release that craving from the mind. Because one of the ways to eliminate a craving is to actually fulfill it. 
So by them getting that information, I feel it really helped them on the path to liberating their mind because now there wasn't this deep sadness and hurt from never having had contact with her father. So it is a special ability that is a byproduct of this path, but I think it does serve a purpose for certain situations. But in my situation, I wasn't interested in holding on to this and I just let it go, let it go, let it go. And there was probably about 10 or 12 different people that I ended up helping with that, including some people that had died in my past that I was able to sense and they were able to communicate with me. But once all that was done and over with, I just let it go and just continue to progress and working closer and closer to liberation. So if you start experiencing these things, and you hold on to these special abilities, you're not going to be able to liberate the mind. So my suggestion is, as these things may or may not happen for you, if you benefit people while those abilities are there, that's fine. But ultimately, the goal is to let these things go and not hold on to them. And that's what's going to be beneficial for you in your practice. We have a question from Sue. Would a person who has returned to this world after having had previous experience with the Buddha's teachings have aversion to organized religion in this new life and then be more drawn to the Buddha's teachings? Potentially. Usually if someone has attained one of these stages of enlightenment and then they're reborn back into the human realm, they're going to more easily find their way to the teachings because their decisions are going to naturally lead them towards good, wholesome decisions and these good wholesome teachings and then once they find the teachings in their new life they're going to be able to more readily learn and practice and start eliminating these fetters because they've done it once before and those residual memories of how the mind existed in their previous existences is, is still there in this new mind so they're going to find their way to these teachings more readily and then once they do they're going to be able to more easily apply these teachings because they're going to more easily learn them and apply them in this new life. We have a question from Rhonda. Is there any way to know what life we are on? Is it possible for a human to know that this is their last life? The answer is yes. By you attaining enlightenment and if you've observed your past lives, you will know what human life you're on. In terms of how many lives you've had in your entire stream of consciousness, that's impossible because you've had so many countless lives, you can't actually count how many you've actually had. But you may be able to see just like your human lives that you've had two or four or five or however many human lives, you might be able to see that. And then once you've attained enlightenment, even though you don't convince yourself fully that you've attained it, you will know that you've attained enlightenment and other people will start to slowly know as well, especially if you're in a Buddhist community of people who know what enlightenment is and what it isn't. They will start being able to observe that you've attained enlightenment. This is one of the reasons why you don't have to go around telling anybody that you've attained enlightenment because by that point of attaining enlightenment, you're going to be around a lot of Buddhist people and they're going to be able to see it themselves. They'll be able to tell that you've attained enlightenment through observation of your behaviors and things like that and how your mind functions. So even though you don't convince yourself that you've attained enlightenment and you continue to pursue deeper and deeper amounts of wisdom all the time, never assuming you're enlightened, you will know that you're enlightened. 
And when you do, you will know that that's your last life. But in the unenlightened state, you're not going to know because it's not yet your last life. It's not yet your last life until you actually have attained enlightenment. But you can get to the point where you will know that you are enlightened, but you just shouldn't convince yourself fully of that and just continue to pursue deeper and deeper amounts of wisdom all the time. We have a question from Joy. Is there a book of Buddha's teachings? There's many books of the Buddha's teachings. His teachings are in 45 volumes of books. These are the Pali Canon or the Pali text. The average person isn't going to read all 45 volumes of those books. I mean, they're really, really thick because he taught for 45 years. And there's lots of repetition in these books. And to be able to learn and then practice, you really need guidance from a teacher to really consolidate his teachings and give it to you in a way that you can learn and practice. So the average person doesn't have access to all 45 volumes of books, but there's this temple in Thailand that went through these 45 volumes of books. They had 100 to 200 people go through all these various books, and then they consolidated kind of an abridged version of the Buddhist teachings into 13 books like this. So this is like one book about gamma. But what they've done is they've gone through 45 volumes of books and they've taken out all the most important teachings about gamma and they've put it into this one book and it becomes very potent and very powerful. So I have these books and if you go to the website buddhadailywisdom.com you can order these and I'll ship it to you. There's 13 of them and I will send it to you wherever you are in the world. These are what I consider to be the PhD of Gautama Buddha's teachings. You should first learn and practice the book that I provide, which consolidates all of his teachings and all of the experience into one book. So most students that study with me will read this or listen to the audiobook and take these classes for many, many months, maybe even a year or so, before they actually move into these books. Because you need to get your like bachelor's and master's degree first, and then once you do, you can move into the PhD. So that's what I suggest for you. If you would like to order these books, you can, and I'll send them to you, but I just don't suggest you dive into them until you've gone through this book maybe two or three or four times either in written format, the audiobook, the classes, the talks, You've gotten a lot of practice under your belt before you move into the Buddhist teachings. This is what the Buddha's books look like. There's 45 of these. So it would take you a really, really long time to read 45 of these. And good luck in the unenlightened state remembering what you actually read after you've read all 45 and applying it in practice. So most people don't have access to that. This is pretty much what you would need is the 13 volumes of these. But before you get to that, be sure that you're learning with this book that I provide. This is going to give you the framework and the structure and foundation that you need to then move into the actual words of the Buddha himself. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. All right. Well, it's been a very interesting session. 
It's been over three hours, which is really interesting that you guys have this many questions and this much interest to learn. Very pleased that you guys are interested to explore and dive into this. I really have no set time for how long these sessions should be. I don't have any expectation. The guidance that I give to Max is that when all the questions are done, then we're done. So that's led us to now, which is a little bit over three hours. So if you guys are still learning and still listening, then congratulations to you for being dedicated to really dive in and continue to explore these teachings. Because the more you understand what enlightenment is, the more likely you will be to attain it as you progress along this path. It's important to understand that enlightenment is not happiness. It is not ultimate bliss. It is this mind that is perfectly fine-tuned, this mind that has been trained to optimally reside in the middle, where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's completely eliminated all discontent feelings. There is no more sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All of these discontent feelings and others have been completely eliminated from the mind. And the mind resides unshakable in the middle, optimally residing in the middle with deep, deep, deep wisdom to be able to make decisions in life that lead to only wholesome results. All the decisions you make as an enlightened being will lead to good, wholesome outcomes because you understand the teaching so well of what causes harm in the world, an enlightened being isn't going to make a decision that causes harm in the world for other people. And therefore, no harm is coming to the enlightened person because they're not causing any harm in the world. Sure, can people get angry with you? Absolutely. Can people get hostile with you? Sure. Do you still get sick? Sure, you're still human. You're going to get sick. Do you still observe bad things in the world? Sure. But none of that stuff affects your mind. Somebody can yell and scream and be hostile with you. Your mind's unshakable. You don't feel pleasure. You don't feel pain in terms of, wow, I'm so pleasurable that this person's getting so angry. Wow, I'm I'm so excited about that. I made them angry. You're not going to feel that at all. You're going to feel deep amounts of love and kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy. The mind's going to be even, have an evenness of temper. You're going to be respectful, polite, kind, generous to people around you. Life is going to be very, very easy because you've essentially figured it out. You figured out through these good, wholesome teachings and training the mind how to now truly live in this world with a mind that's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You're not causing any harm to others. Therefore, no harm is coming to you. And this is the enlightened mind. As you progress along this path, you will get glimpses of that more and more and more. Even if it's just for a few seconds during your meditation, you will get a glimpse of what it feels like to have that completely and utterly peaceful mind where it's completely serene, completely content and joyful.
And even if you get that couple of seconds in meditation, let that be the truth to you that now all you need to do is learn and practice more of these teachings to expand this for longer and longer periods of time over your life. And through learning and practicing the teachings, acquiring this wisdom to make better and better choices in your life, you will be able to do that. And some of the first choices to make are picking up this book, learning, applying the teachings, coming to these classes, asking questions, making sure you understand, apply the teachings and practice, making good choices to meditate and train your mind each day, applying that in practice. So as you make more and more decisions that are in the direction of enlightenment, you will ultimately move the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. So on Wednesday, I'll be teaching you guys Buddhist chanting, which will help to deepen your meditation practice. This is on Wednesday at nine o'clock Thai time. So you're welcome to join then. Next Sunday is where we really start getting into the Buddhist teachings, the real beginning of the path, the Four Noble Truths. So it's important that you learn that content from chapter four and that you learn the content from that talk on Sunday, whether you attend live or you listen to the podcast afterwards. The Four Noble Truths is the foundation of all of his other teachings. Without understanding and practicing the Four Noble Truths, a person would have no chance to get to enlightenment whatsoever. So it's very, very important that next Sunday, chapter four, that you take in that content either live or subsequently after that. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to get into the eightfold path, which is exactly the path to enlightenment of how to actually train the mind on a detailed level of how to actually attain this mental state that we talked about today. So have a very good rest of your day. Focus on treating people polite, kind, caring, friendly, with respect in all situations. Even if they are not the same way with you, don't let that affect your mind. You practice this way because it's good and wholesome, not because you expect something in return, but just because it's good for your mind. Polite, kind, caring, friendly, respectful to all beings. Until next time, have a wonderful, wonderful day. Take care. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.